Welcome to the Mega Blast Podcast. I'm your host, Jason McDonald. My goal is to get to the truth through conversation. The Mega Blast Podcast is produced by Arts and Opinion, an online journal housed at the Archives of Canada. Visit us at artsandopinion.com. I hope you enjoy today's guest. Welcome to the Lakeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today I'm going to be talking with my friend Jason McDonald about Thomas Sowell, a very controversial uh, intellectual economist. Uh, welcome, Jason. Hi, John. How are you doing? Hi, I'm doing very well. So maybe you can sort of just, for our listeners who aren't familiar with Thomas Sowell, maybe you can sort of just tell us a little bit uh, about uh, Thomas Sowell. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, he was born in uh, in the Carolinas a long, long time ago. He's very old, and he his parents were extremely poor. His father died before he was uh, born, I believe, and he had to be adopted by some relatives in New York, where he grew up in Harlem. And uh, he went to good schools there. He was fortunate. He's often, he often says the schooling he got in New York in the, in the I guess the 30s and 40s was better than a lot of the American schools are doing now. I don't know if that's true or not, but he says that. Um, and he had a kind of a roundabout upbringing. He quit school and then he, you know, he joined the army and he worked and did a bunch of things and he ended up going back to university, I believe, to, he got into Harvard, and then he moved on from there, and he ended up at the University of Chicago, which uh, anyone who knows anything about that school will know, you know, it's a, it's a uh, let's call it a libertarian or classical liberal orientation in its economic school, Milton Friedman, so that was a life-changing experience for him, that oriented him. He, he was a Marxist at that point, which uh, might surprise a lot of people, I think, although maybe not so many. A lot of these uh, these right-wing people, I think they started out as Marxists. I think that's a pretty common thing. Anyway, and then he went on and he got, a, I'm not sure, I believe, graduate work in economics, and he wrote lots of books on economics, and he's written about other things, and he's dabbled in all kinds of different fields, a uh, variety of different things, so. Uh, I don't know if that. Yeah, no, that's a good. I mean, just to respond to one thing you said there, the about the education system in the 1930s um, and 40s, that's actually very well documented. That he's it was better in many different in many respects. There's actually a really good overview of this. The best one I've seen is in Malcolm Gladwell's book Outliers. He talks about um, how. The he talks about like the how much demographic troughs and like hills and valleys, how much those affect your uh, future success in life. So he says, for instance, the best time to be in the public school system, especially in a place like New York, um, was in the 1930s because you had you had just this perfect storm of awesome. So you had first of all, you had lots of um, highly intelligent uh, women, especially, but not just women, uh, minorities, various other people who were 
um, kept out of a lot of professions, which of course sucked for them um, in many ways because it limited their possibilities. But it was great for students because it meant that you had all of these, uh, you know, these sort of these Jewish women, black women, you know, all also who basically couldn't go into medicine, the law, and many other fields, but they could get into education. And so you had uh, these, it's sort of similar to what we had here in Montreal with Concordia when it was Sir George Williams. So because McGill had Jewish quotas and had limitations on um, certain on certain people getting into programs and into the university itself, you had this all sorts of super brilliant uh, especially Jews like went to Sir George Williams because they couldn't get in anywhere else. And then you had professors at Sir George Williams, a whole bunch of them who um, were people who had been blacklisted during the Red Scare and during the, uh, you know, the early the second Red Scare. And so they had to leave the United States because they couldn't get, they were basically you know, victims of what we now call cancel culture. And they came up here and a whole bunch of them. So you had, uh, you had at public schools, you know, throughout North America and at universities, you had people teaching at these places and people going to them who were what we would now see as being incredibly overqualified. You know, you'd have like, I mean, you look at like some of the teachers that were teaching public school in New York City in the 1930s, these are like women with PhDs in, you know, from top universities, but they couldn't get a job anywhere in yeah, higher education. And so if you, and then combined with that, you had what's a demographic trough. So the birth rate went dramatically down during the Great Depression. So if you were one of the kids that went into public schools during that period, you got incredibly like overqualified teachers who were amazing, who those teachers largely don't exist now in public education because they can go elsewhere and make much more money and have better status. Right. Um, And then you had incredibly great teachers and you had really small class sizes. So the class sizes at a public school in New York city, uh, because those were all unionized workers, it's not as if you could just like get rid of half of them when um, populations go down. So they were still, you still had these amazing, super great teachers and you had class sizes that were a third to a half what they normally like, which means like little Thomas Sowell and other people like him got massive amounts of one-on-one attention um, from teachers in a way that uh, kids in the you know 1920s or kids in the 1950s with the baby boom uh, did not right so this and, and Malcolm Gladwell says you know it's no accident that we just get this amazing flowering of intellectual talent uh, from Thomas Sowell's generation. Right? Does because he does he mention Sowell specifically, or is it just a general? Like I'm wondering who some of these other you know luminaries are. I, I'm sure. oh he he goes through if you go in. Uh, in, I've read that book. In, I just don't remember that part. You remember the chapter where he talks about, I and mean, it's been years since I've read the book, but you, you know the chapter where he talks about that, that uh, like Jewish lawyer who would take all the oh, cases yeah, that yeah. nobody else would do? It's in, <laughs> it's in, it's in yeah. that chapter. Yeah. It's in that yeah. chapter where he says how he was part of this generation of 
young people who came of age in New York City going to the public schools at a point where uh, it was just you know an amazing time to be going to a public school right and so many of those things are are just not um yeah. It's just not present anymore. Like now, you know, when I've taught when I've taught at uh, university classes, as a general rule, the education students are the absolute worst students in the class, right? So that's you're getting like you know if if in a class of 120 students, if there's you know 15 students that fail, the typical thing is like 12 of them are from the education department. Yeah. And it, which is so depressing as a parent when you're you're like, oh my God, this is who's gonna be teaching our young people. But in the past, that was not the case. Uh, and actually Alan Bloom talks about this in the closing of the American mind quite a bit, that um obviously shutting people like Jews and women and stuff like that, shutting people out of uh, you know, higher education and, and various professions, that was unjust and it was wrong and i'm glad that we fixed it however it was also even, costly yeah well, well it's yeah. just this weird it's just this weird yeah. situation where sometimes people benefit from injustice oh i see what you mean yeah like yeah. it's ugly you know it's ugly but um they you, you, you could you could look at that in multiple ways i mean it's possible that that also cost us some amazing inventions too like we don't you know those people who went i mean you know, we don't know what didn't happen. We can't, right? So maybe some of those teachers who were teaching old Thomas Sowell and helping him become a great person, maybe they could have, you know, invented something. It's it's very difficult to know, right? Oh, I think that's almost definitely true. I mean, this was uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, his whole idea of, um, I, I love his idea of the talented tense, where he has that, uh, where he said that every time you exclude groups from, uh, from opportunities, from education, from going into you. He, he said, for argument's sake, uh, we should assume that within every group, there is like a, what he calls the talented tenth, right? And if you, if you basically close yourself off to entire like groups and say like, okay, they're not allowed to this, then you are excluding that talented tenth and you're, you're reducing the amount of talent that your community could draw upon for new yeah. ideas and business and military stuff and science and you know you name it arts like you're you're closing off those possibilities by excluding those people so yeah no definitely there's another was, famous case i'm sure you've heard of him of a, a guy who was rejected by mcgill forget his name now but he went to queens in ontario and he became this famous scientist and he donated all of his art. He became this big art collector. I'm blanking on his name right now. But he did it like he openly said, like, you know, McGill rejected me, right? You know, and anyway, it's a side note that uh, kind of a sad comment on what you're talking about there. You know? Yeah, it's it's odd. I mean, I, I find um, Thomas Sowell, I mean, he's an incredibly controversial figure for all sorts of reasons i mean i think part of he he's annoying to a lot of people on the left um big time um because i think partially partially it's just because he's he's an african-american 
guy who yeah you is, know can i just say something quickly about that yeah I, yeah 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 shoot. I, I, there's sort of a story of how i i got to know his work um i you know after the 2008 financial crisis i um i wasn't affected by it i had a job at that point at, where i work I'm, I'm a professor and a uh, teacher and uh Anyway, but I was fascinated, you know, this thing had happened and I was like, what happened? So I started going down these rabbit holes on the internet and finding, and I stumbled upon this guy called Russ Roberts, who you may know about. He's an economist. Um, he's nope. His bill now. Yeah, he's really an amazing interviewer. I sort of based, uh, I sort of try and model myself to try and be like Russ Roberts. He's kind of like the opposite of me. He's very calm and relaxed and really, you know, he's really <laughs> good at disagreeing with people. And that's like a problem I have. So I sort of, anyway, so I, I, you know, I've been listening to him for, you know, 12 years or whatever. And on one of his shows, he had Thomas Sowell. And this was like maybe five, six years ago when Sowell wasn't as well known. He seems to be getting better known now. It's, it appears to me I, that could be an illusion, just my selective bias of who I'm with. But anyway, so I listened to the interview. I was like, wow, this guy sounds really smart. So I got one of his books and I read it and I was just completely sucked right into it. I couldn't put it down. And then I got another one. And then I was partway through the second or third book. And he was talking about all these like African-American schools and all this stuff about the education. And, and I was like, well, you know, wow, maybe this guy's black, you know, right? I mean, <laughs> Right. And then I went and looked at him and I was like, yeah, the guy is black because I'd heard him on an audio thing. And I thought in some senses, it sounds kind of chintzy to say, I think some people might find that, you know, um, I don't know. Like I told it to a friend of mine and she was sort of like, well, that's kind of, you know, weird. But I think it's an amazing statement of just the, the amazing rigor of his work that it doesn't, you know, imagine re reading, you know, I don't know, just pick your great other intellectual right now, Ibram X. Ken or, you know, something like that. You know, how could you read them without not knowing that, right? It's kind of, you know, and with Soul, it's kind of this incidental fact. His work stands on its own and his being black is just something on the side. So I don't really understand why people are so put off by that. Is it just perhaps, you know, maybe he's on the right wing or something? I don't, you know. It, well, I think people like yeah. him, people like him always... Uh, always are at least at least initially seem like um, a challenge to various kinds of essentialism. So if you say that like the the importance of the identity of the person speaking is it decides very much like whether or not you should listen to this or not, uh, and if you believe in the whole idea of like um, epistemic privilege that certain people by virtue of their um, of their experience have access to to knowledge that other people do not. If you if you buy into all of that, the holy, that idea, the holy sainted, you know, race or something, right? Something like that. Well, it, it no. could be. It's it's mainly. I mean, he talks about the vision of the anointed. That's a different thing. But if you believe that uh, that certain people that 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 two plus two is not equal to four, if certain people say it. Um, and if some people say that two plus two is equal to five and they're the right people, then, well, we have to revise things. It's five now because, because these people who are authoritative sources have, have said that it's this and you need to, you know, hashtag believe women, hashtag, you know, shut up and listen, hashtag like yours. If you buy into that whole, um, situation, then, 
that that worldview, then people like Thomas Sowell are a problem. You know, in the same way that Margaret Thatcher was a problem for uh, for some some feminists when I was a kid. They would I remember asking a teacher once, like who talked about how the world would be a better place if it was ruled by women and I brought up, I said, well, what about Margaret Thatcher? She's like starting wars and she seems to be pretty. And she said, oh, she's not a real woman. Yeah. And so you can say, well, Thomas Sowell is not a real black man. Or you can say like, uh, you, you can basically say anybody who, who doesn't fit into your, um, your categorization of what, like, uh, what a, a Jewish person is supposed to believe. Like, oh, you don't totally support Israel, so you're a self-hating Jew. Or you don't like support my political program as a African-American man, well, you're an Uncle Tom, or you're like, I mean, there's always like, there's ways like, oh, you have internalized misogyny, and that's why you got don't, into don't feminism. You, don't you think it's kind of racist to do this? Like the black example, you're not, I mean, that seems racist to me. That seems like you're taking his race and you're using it against him, right? I, like I, maybe I'm misunderstanding what racism is or something, but it just it. I don't. I don't know. I mean, the funniest, the funniest example of this I I've seen, you know, by far is I don't know if you remember um, Douglas Murray in his book, the the madness of crowds. He tells this. He has this hilarious, I, I actually put, wrote it down because I was like, I got to mention this to Jason when we were talking, but uh, he says, um, bum, bum, bum. Uh, the London School of Economics is, as it boasts of itself, one of the world's leading universities of the social sciences. With an international intake and a global reach, uh, LSE has always put engagement with the wider world at the heart of its mission. Over at its LSE Review of Books page in May 2012, a review appeared of a new book by Thomas Sowell, Intellectuals and Society, uh, had come out two years earlier. But in the world of academia, intellectual drive-by shootings often happen at a more leisurely pace than in the rest of society. The reviewer, Aidan Byrne, was the senior lecturer in English and Media and Cultural Studies at Wolverhampton University. In this capacity, his byline informed us. He specializes in masculinity in blah, 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 it goes on. Um, uh, for his part, Byrne was unimpressed by the highly partisan nature of Sowell's book. And so two years after Sowell's book had been published, Byrne took aim and attempted to fire. From his opening line, he warned that intellectuals in society consists of a series of outdated and sometimes dishonest shots at Sowell's political enemies. Among other charges included in Burns' review was a claim that one line in Sowell's book echoed the concerns of the Tea Party and constituted a thinly disguised attack on racial integration. An even odder allegation against Sowell came when Byrne warned readers that Sowell's references to racial issues constituted little more than disordered and disturbing dog whistles. In a similar fashion, Sowell's arguments about the legacies of the past were also a coded intervention uh, warming to his theme, Byrne explained to him, Sowell, slavery's cultural legacy means that it shouldn't be considered a moral problem, nor should amelioration be attempted. Uh, he goes on and then his, the money shot is, he says, well, it's it's easy for a rich man, white man like Sowell to say these things. <laughs> <laughs> 
And it was just, I mean, I remember when that, when that review, people were sharing it like crazy on like Facebook and Twitter. So and he, they just looked so ridiculous, right? Like, they, but the, and then they were incredibly embarrassed. They were incredibly embarrassed, right? Could we say that's out. like white splaining? I don't know. Is that something like that? I, I guess. I mean, but it just, it points out, and I, you know, you and I have both seen this on Facebook like numerous times where there'll be a debate happening about something and somebody will say, well, you know, it's interesting to note how the lack of diversity on this Facebook thread. And then, you know, somebody will chime up to sentence like so often they'll either chime up and say, um, actually, I'm, you know, I'm South Asian or I'm East Asian or I'm, you know, African Canadian or I'm from the Caribbean or I'm from South America or, or I'm Mohawk actually. And people will chime in and say like, no, that's actually not true. And then you see exactly the same thing where they say, well, clearly you're, you're not a real. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's the, I mean, it, that's the instance, right? I mean, it, it sort of seems like there's two ways you can view the issue of race, right? You can view it in that determinative way, or you can take the Martin Luther King way, you know, which, which is to say that, you know, don't judge a person by the race. In other words, the race should not be something that's that, that important, right? So I think that soul, that's clearly what he's, you know, his, his being black is just like, it's like me being white. It's not I don't know. It's it's not something that's important. Like there are so many other things about me that would rate higher than my my ethnic racial background. You know, in terms of how I view myself, right? Anglophone, Montreal, or Canadian, Quebec, or whatever. You know, I could just go down on a whole list of things. That, you know, but anyway, I mean, he is he is. I've definitely I've learned a lot from Seoul, but I I can't help but wonder. You know, there are. There are certain people who gain prominence yeah. in in circles, and they gain prominence for for reasons that are you know have more to do than just like their thought. And I, I you know, in the same way that you'll see like the um, you'll see like these they have these horrible uh, conferences usually in Iran where they're like conferences for Holocaust deniers. Right. right, and they'll get together from all over the world, and you'll always bring see in like some Israeli or something. Exactly, right? they'll always bring in some like yeah. like some Orthodox yeah. Jews, and they'll make sure to have them like up on the in stage in in the photo ops. Like they want yeah. them, and yeah. you know the Soviet Union did the same thing with people like uh, W. E. B. Du Bois, and where they would you know find like some people who. Uh, it's just such a trope. Like the, you see, once you start to see this pattern, it, it can become a little bit. So, and by a, by a little bit, I mean a lot. Really tedious. Where they'll a very common trope in any. If you're looking at like Jezebel or or any any kind of like uh, news outlet or organization that has a an axe to grind, they'll have what they call what I call this sort of the Saul to Paul stories. You know, testimonials from people that basically sound like a, a non-musical version of the hymn Amazing Grace. It's right. like, I once was blind, but now I see. So if you go to right-wing sources, you'll find people saying, oh, I was once a Marxist and a progressive, but I saw the light. You know, I've, I, and, I was, 
And then on the other side, you'll see people, if you want to read, you know, Democracy Now! and it's forget, they'll have people saying, I was once a free market libertarian, but I saw the light, you know, and, and then like everybody has these narratives. Right. And I wonder, I, I can't help but suspect that Thomas Sowell's success um, is to some extent a function of the fact that he was a convenient, uh, convenient um, spokesman for for a bunch yeah. of ideas. Do you know I mean, what I mean? Yeah, I totally understand. I mean that that so there's probably you could divide. You know, there are millions of people who are reading his work, right? And so, you know, th- there must be a subset who are secret racists, is what the charge would be, right? So there's a subset of people who. They're they're reading his work and they don't really respect him as a person as much as they would if it was a or to another person who they might love, right? They don't have any black friends or they're like true racists or something, but they're using him as a you know, how much of his popularity is due to that? I, I don't know. Does it matter that much? I mean, does that affect the quality of his work? Do you think that he's affected by that and he's responded because he's gotten more popular? Yeah, and that's affected his work negatively. Like, I don't think that is necessarily true. I, although it could be. I mean, I'm not him, you know. I, I don't think that. Yeah. I think he has a kind of a rigor and intellectual honesty. He, he is a right-wing person, him. I, I actually don't agree with him on, on some of his right-wing things. You know, he's kind of, um, you know, some of this sort of abortion. It sounds like he, I'm pro-choice, for example, right? And he's, you know, he seems to be more on the other side. But, you know, okay, is that because he is trying to please the Tea Party people who are a bunch of old white guys or something, or is that just really what he believes, right? Oh, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, um, I don't, I seriously doubt that I would never accuse him of like sort of tailoring his views to, you know, singing for whatever Piper is playing the, you know, the song. I I don't think he's doing anything like that. (laughs) I'm just saying that people, people often, I had a, you know, friend of mine who's actually been on the podcast uh, before and uh, he's he was really he's kind of he's kind of been a little bit disillusioned with libertarianism in the last couple of years but he was hardcore like he went to the libertarian camps <laughs> in california he went to the the objectivist like and rand groups like he was practically like cult member level, like commitment to this stuff. Like he, he actually went to training camps, like red diaper baby camps, except for, for libertarians and Randians and stuff like that. But, and he said, you know, it was interesting because he'd go to these things and like, it was just every single libertarian conference he went to was overwhelmingly. And by overwhelmingly, like we're talking he said minimum 80%, sometimes as much as 95% uh, was basically like white guys. <laughs> right, right. White, white and guys. male, like also male. White and male. And male. Yeah. White and male. And he said, and they, you know, there was, it was, you know, very clearly was kind of an ideology that appealed primarily to, uh, to that demographic. But you would always have like a sprinkling of uh, you know some like Asians, some like, some like Latinos, some women, and he said you know. But what was amazing is that like on the panel for the photo ops and stuff like that, 
they would always as much right. as possible. Right. And, and he, Put the you know, black guy knowing, yeah. knowing, knowing practically nobody at these things, because he was Asian, they would ask him to come up for right. all the fun. Just like, oh yeah, we want to like make it look like it's a much more diverse group than it actually is, right? So I wonder if, to what extent, uh, well, somebody but, like it, Thomas Sowell like benefited from he that. May, so, he may have. He may have. I mean, does that matter? I mean, is that is that something like? Is I'm just trying to figure out why that would be something that would be important. You know what I mean? Like, is it? I, you know, I mean, maybe it's, is it distasteful? It sounds a little bit sort of sleazy to me, you know, especially if they're being used, right? Yeah. Um, what are the implications for the wider impact of Soul's work? Um, I, I, I don't know. That's uh, like, are there any? Maybe there are not. Does it matter? I, I don't know. I'm, I'm just. I'm, it doesn't matter to me very much, uh, if at all, actually. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter, matter to me, me at all. Actually. Yeah, but you know, like that for me. But I mean, maybe for other people, there's some sort of a reason why we should be suspicious of him or something. I I don't know. And there might be a reasonable reason for that too. Like I, that I I can't see. You know, maybe you could tell me what it is. Right? Yeah. Well, there's. I mean, there's. I guess it depends. Like if there's, um, I would I would sort of say that there's definitely some overlap. But as a general rule, I would say that when it comes to let's say books there's sort of two categories of, of books, right? There's, there's one which uh, where like your personal experience is extremely important to, um, to whether I should take this seriously or not. So if somebody writes a book, like an adventure book, like for instance, you know, our friend, uh, Mike, right? Like Mike Spencer Mike, Bone. Yeah, no, Mike, uh, Mike Spencer Bone, who wrote uh, The World's Most Traveled Man. It's a fantastic book. It's, he's, uh, he's been on the podcast and he's, he's traveled to every country on earth since 2000. And even like, like ones that are incredibly hard to get into. He's been to like war torn countries, like while he was in Iraq during the war, (laughs) backpacking around. He's, so his his book is absolutely fascinating because he's just telling you about all these wild, crazy experiences that he's had all over the world recently, you know, since right. 2000. Right. Now, if I found out that um, it was all bullshit, it was all a hoax that he actually, like, has been living in Calgary in his mom's basement <laughs> this whole time. And I know Mike's listening to this. So, like, if I found out it was all bullshit and he just made it up, that would totally change right. my view because his book is based on his experiences, his adventures. Right. Right. But if, if somebody writes a book like a conflict of visions or, you know, like it, it, very, the books that Thomas Sowell has, has written, they're books of ideas, like, and they stand or fall on their own merit. It doesn't really matter very much who he is. Like, I don't feel like his identity yeah, if I found out that Thomas Sowell was actually like a, like a, I don't know, if I found out he, something, I don't know. he was like actually like a, like a Jewish woman who was like right, dressing, right. dressing up like a black man because like <laughs> she has like some, some sort of Rachel Dol- Dolezal right. smushed with, uh, I don't know, Jenner, like whatever, Caitlyn Jenner, like, I don't know, if I found out that he was, his identity was different than he, 
presented to people, and this was only found out after his death, let's say, it wouldn't change my readings of his books very much. Not, not many of them. I, I was going to say there are some part, as I said, I, I stumbled upon, I think it was uh, the Black Rednecks and White Liberals. That was the second or third book. And in that book, he talks a lot about education for African-Americans and so on. And it turns out that is something that is at least connected to his own experience to some extent, right? Like he is, yeah. right? So I suppose you could take some of his work and sort of siphon it off to maybe like 10% of it, let's say, and the rest of it would all just be ideas or even less than 10%, really. Yeah. Well, I think his his most where he, you know, and I was saying this, um, you know, talking to some friends the other day, like where, first of all, of all of his books, I think the one that they were trashing in that uh, review that went viral because it's, you know, well, as a white man, you know, as a privileged <laughs> white man, like yeah. that of, of all of his books, I think that is That's uh, the intellectual, intellectual, what's it called? Intellectuals in society. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I find that to be like by far his best book of, of all the ones that I've read, just because he covers a massive amount of ground and he actually summarizes he summarizes in, you know, a chapter stuff that he devotes entire books to elsewhere. And so yeah. he really distills it down into a very kind of uh, understandable. I mean, like, I'm curious. You know. um, well, particularly, uh, there's this one part that I thought our, our listeners absolutely should, uh, is where his, his basic idea of like the tragic vision versus the vision of the anointed and i wanted to actually spend a, a lot of time on that because i, I think that is it's just important it's, it's, it's so 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 powerful studies. yeah i know it's really part of it so just uh his basically he says that um that there's two underlying what we call uh, progressivism and conservatism there are two very 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 different um visions of the of the world and of human nature and of uh, civilization. And that if you, if you don't see that, then you're not going to be able to make sense of, there's going to be just this huge chasm of misunderstanding yeah. between. And so for the, um, it says at the heart of the social vision prevalent among contemporary intellectuals is the belief that there are problems created by institutions and that solutions to these problems can be excogitated by intellectuals. The vision is both a vision of society and a vision of the role of intellectuals within society. In short, intellectuals have seen themselves not simply as an elite in the passive sense in which large landowners, rentiers or holders of various sinecures might qualify as this elite, but as an anointed elite, people with a mission to lead others in one way or another toward better lives. And then he goes on and he says, uh, the uh, vision of society in which there are many problems to be solved by applying the ideas of morally anointed intellectual elites is by no means the only vision, however much that vision may be prevalent among today's intellectuals. A conflicting vision has coexisted for centuries, a vision in which the inherent flaws of human beings are the fundamental problem and social contrivances are simply the imperfect means of trying to cope with those flaws. The imperfections of these contrivances being themselves products of the inherent shortcomings of human beings. 
Uh, that is the blah, blah, blah. So the idea being that uh, in a tragic vision, barbarism. Just, yeah, 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 yeah. Just something quickly, just the names of those. He originally named those the, the, the unconstrained vision, the first one you named out, unconstrained. And the second one, uh, the constraint, and I think Steven Pinker renamed them uh, utopian versus tragic visions, uh, which I think is a better. I think Steven Pinker's naming is, is better in the sense it makes you remember them more easily, right? Like, so people yeah. who a left-wing view, let's say, just to put it on the political spectrum, would think that if we have these amazing ideas and we put them into practice, usually through government, you know, then we're going to have things that are going to be better in the future and we're going to move towards some sort of a utopia by our actions, right? The opposite view is a tragic view that we're just these miserable, you know, horrible people, all of us, we're all sinners, something like that, put in a religious sense. And all we, you know, we have to kind of have institutional structures that, you know, incentivize us not to be selfish and barbaric and to be, you know, to, to go towards the better angel of our nature, right? Yeah. He, he even talks about how people with these two different views, it's almost like they're living on different planets, right? Like they, in the sense that they're thinking about people in such different ways that it's almost like they're thinking about different people. In some sense. At one point he says that, which I think is really interesting. But anyway, I apologize. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's, uh, it is actually very, very, and I, I like, uh, you know, I like what he says. This is from another one of his books where he says, um, the opposing visions differ not only in what they believe exists, and in what they think is possible, but also in what they think needs explaining. To those with the vision of the anointed, it is such evils as poverty, crime, war, and injustice, which require explanation. To those with the tragic vision, however, it is prosperity, law, peace, and such justice as we have achieved, which require not only explanation, but constant efforts, trade-offs, and sacrifices just to maintain them at their existing levels, much less promote their enhancement over time. It's, I mean, that is just absolutely very fantastic. Yeah. It's very, very powerful. Yeah. And I think it's, I think it's quite, it's quite true. I mean, I've, I've seen, um, I've traveled around enough to, I've, I've been in places where you have an incredibly weak state, you know, where you yeah. have, uh, you basically don't have law and order where uh, violence is an ever-present threat. Uh, and you have, to, you have to be very, very careful, you know, because all sorts of bad things can happen to you easily, right? If you've grown up in an environment like that, or you've, um, you've, had, you've been exposed to it, then you, I think the tragic vision makes more sense because yeah. you realize, yeah. you realize, <laughs> that, uh, you realize sure. that actually, like, not, not having any kind of like constraints. Yeah. yeah. Not having law and order, not having institutions. It's, it, it doesn't sort of, it doesn't <laughs> shake out on its own. It doesn't just, you know, it, it doesn't just go towards calm and peace on its own naturally. Yeah, that's, exactly. And that's, yeah, and right. one thing I found with, uh, with, with a lot of kind of progressives who have an, an anarchist bent and also with some, with some libertarians who have an anarchist bent is that they just, they're so unbelievably naive in yeah. the, and what, what Thomas Sowell talks about that, like, they think that somehow if you just eliminated, you know, law enforcement and eliminated the state, that there would be this wonderful spontaneous order would just emerge and it would be amazing and everything would be great. And like, 
from a source but, point, it's like, what are you fucking talking about? Yeah, I mean, yeah. No, it won't. Well, it's, it's no, also, it's, it, it, I mean, Stephen Pinker's, I don't know if you've read his book, The Better Angels. I mean, it's sure, like, of course. I've all of the evidence, yeah. yeah. All of the evidence in Thomas Sowell's work as well is, is the opposite, that humans lived in a state of anarchy for most of our time on this planet, where we spent most of our time trying to, you know, make sure that this other group didn't attack us and maybe attack them first. And that took up a lot of our, you know, human capital, right? You know, uh, for us, you know. And when you have a Leviathan, when you have some sort of institutional structure, I was just reading one of Sol's books about empires, conquest and empires. Today. I was finishing up the part on uh, the United Kingdom. And he talked about how in England, they gradually moved towards a system where uh, the Leviathan was able to, you know, basically become a normality there earlier than in other parts of Europe and the world. And that opens up then things like long-term investments. You know, people can say, okay, I want to spend, you know, this amount of money to make that amount of money in 20 years or something. And I know that the state's not going to repossess my stuff or that this, you know, someone's not going to come and steal it or some other sort of a thing. And you get a kind of um, uh, movement towards uh, a better life, let's say, right, in that context. But, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. well, I, I just, I guess one of my, one of my, I find this is like definitely when he, when he describes this conflict divisions and when he describes like what these positions entail, this is for me, like him at, at his absolute best. Like I find him very wise and very useful and very interesting when he's talking about these, uh, these things where I find his thought, um, falls apart and becomes much, much more flimsy is when he tries to sort of connect the tragic vision to a sort of laissez-faire free market. Um, you know, it can be because it, it seems to me that if you, if you adopt the tragic vision and I, I actually, I'm incredibly, I'm, I'm very partial to the tragic vision, but if you adopt the tragic vision, it seems to push primarily in the opposite direction that you can't. And I, he never, in, in everything I've written, I've, I've read by him, he never adequately explains uh, how he reconciles this tragic vision with free markets. Cause he says that there's going to be this spontaneous order that's going to emerge. And that if you just get out of the way, everything, when in fact his whole argument pushes in the other direction yeah i i don't see that the same way i think because I, there's something in, in economics called emergent order which he's referring to right which is to say that i mean you, one example i think soul gives and a lot of people give us an example of emergent order is um you know, language there's no, no nobody nobody designed the language we speak right it sort of shakes out over time and words you know uh, we we start using certain words and they become common or they don't just depending on social, um, you know, um, convention. And part of the tragic vision too is an allowance for um, something like wisdom and accrued knowledge being put. He talks a lot about this. I'm sure you've noticed this, right? Sure. Ahead of, um, because the anointed, if you think about the anointed, it's a focus on, you know, abstract thinking and IQ, right? So it's sort of like, you can take all these ideas and put them together and they're beautiful there. And then, you know, whether or not they apply over time, whether or not it's going to work over a period of time is, is not known and they might, or they might not, 
But if you look at an institutional structure that functions over a very long period of time, it seems to work, right? There's a lot of accrued knowledge in there, like in a country, let's say, right? You know, so I don't, I don't mm-hmm. see a contradiction there. I don't, you know, like, you know, those things can, emergent order is something that can exist in biology. It exists in economics. It exists in all sorts of things. And I don't, See, oh, emergent, it's a basic yeah. property of the universe as we know it. It's a pro- right. physics, biology, yeah. everything. Yeah. No, I, I, I totally How is that in conflict with, with the tragic vision? I don't, I'm just, they seem like different things. So maybe I'm not following your logic. I don't know. But, uh, well, because, okay, to take a, an analogy to, to horticulture, to, to gardening. So my, my buddy Alex is planning out all of his, his gardens for the summer and he's got an expanded. And so what you do, with with gardening is you you obviously kind of set up a situation you build fences to keep out like groundhogs and you have other things to try and uh to protect your plants from uh from pests and from fungi fungi and from you know birds and various things like that and so then you try and make sure you've got the right uh soil Right, fertilizer and all those things. And so you set it all up and then you put in um, a bunch of different plants. But then there's this, this randomness and there's the stuff that's outside of your control, which is like the amount of sun that happens that summer, the, how cold it gets, how hot it gets, if there's enough rain or too much or too little, or there's all these other factors which are not out of your control. And so if you try and obsessive compulsively manage a garden it won't work yeah. but you basically you, you do a bunch of stuff and then you kind of just like see what comes up and you see what does well and then you even if you don't understand why this plant that you really wanted to grow just doesn't seem to fucking like living here <laughs> it just doesn't it, it looks like shit all the time it doesn't it's really it's fragile. Happy, you right? basically have to, yeah, you basically yeah. have to go with like what seems to, um, out of this emergent order, what is like working well and what isn't, right? So I see an economy as being similar to that. There's, there's a bunch of factors that no amount of central planning is ever going to be able to you know, think of everything, right? So what you do is you create an economy with that is governed by by laws and by certain things that you can and cannot do uh, that are against the law. And so you create this good environment um, with with restrictions and stuff like that. And then you sort of just like sit back and see what comes up and see what right. works and right. what doesn't. Right. And you can't. Uh, it seems to me like the, so, right. the so far would- the far end of the laissez-faire spectrum seems to want to say that we should just um, get rid of all of those restrictions and that's going to un uh, sort of unpack or unleash the the true power of our garden when in fact if you take down the uh, the fences around your garden if you stop like monitoring the water and like so you say well I just want to you know survival of the fittest like so let's say it gets really hot and dry for two weeks in July. You know, and now a smart gardener would notice this and water the garden once a day. But somebody who says, yeah, I just want it to be a you know, survival of the food, just like, hey, 
you know, too big to fail. Like, okay, well, I'm just going to let my whole fucking garden. Yeah, you're an idiot. Like, you're going to like, you're going to yeah, well, not water it. Like, too, so big it to seems- fail. too big to fail is actually intervening, in fact, right? It's, you know what I mean? Like, the- well, but I think, I think inter, in the same way that uh, intelligent, you know, if you, if you over garden a garden, it's, it's not going to work. That's, but, if you, that's, but if you underprotect it, it will it will somehow be. Yeah, and I think I think it seems. That, yeah. I think yeah. it seems it's obvious that. to me. And uh, Jonathan Haidt is is working his his new book is on uh, the morality of capitalism. And he's talking about how people. He's very influenced by Thomas Sowell, and he was saying he was telling me that uh, he's, he's writing on this, and he says, you "No, know, people imagine, especially in academics and." intellectuals and people on the left that capitalism is just this immoral um, system. And he says, actually, it's intensely moral and it's so dependent on morality and ethics that if you try and set up, if you try and make capitalism work in a place that doesn't have the proper sort of culture and, and morality and ethics in place, that capitalism will not take root there. It won't work. That you need to actually, people have to be quite trustworthy and honest, and you have to have high amounts of social trust and law and order for capitalism to work, right? So his his point is, yeah, his point is that the idea, the idea that just getting rid of all government regulations and that this naturally is going to unleash the, the power of the economy. So this is just completely a wrong way to like think about it like it's it's about like the right kinds of fences and the right kinds of interventions that help the garden flourish you know to its its greatest extent it's but there is this among certain uh, certain people there's this idea that somehow you know there's there's one way to fix all of these problems and it's just deregulation and there's one problem and it's always government and it becomes so circular Axiom. that you can you can be you can Axiom. basically explain absolutely. It's like trying to talk to a fundamentalist Christian. Like they can explain everything with regard to demonic uh, intervention in the world. Like, and it doesn't matter. Like, you can bring bring up any objection. They're like, well, clearly that's just demonic. And so they'll say, like, oh well, that's government regulation. That's what caused that. That's what it's like. You know, if it explains everything, it explains nothing. Yeah. So they, I, I just what I would interject there quickly is that the you you mentioned that the you know that the you know some places have functioning economies. You know, take Denmark or some place that has, or the United States or some really functional place, and you've got a higher level of trust than you have in you know I don't know uh, Angola or you know Russia or some country where there's best. And that's true, except that it's not necessarily, I mean, it's it's embedded into the culture through the institutions in a country that functions well. You know, people build up that trust over time when the institutions are like just the walls around the garden, pretty much, right? You know, there it's like you set up this system and you, you know, the walls around the garden to me, when you talk about that, what I see is a good system of defense, because that's what the government should be doing, right? Making sure the country is safe from... Um, external attack inside the garden, you know, when you're doing some of the micromanaging, you know, you're pulling the, you know, insects get in there, you try and get them out of there. That's like internal security, 
right? That's kind of like maybe policing. People can't, if people can't feel safe, right, they're not likely to go out of their houses and do things, you know, in order to make their lives better and other people's lives better, right? They're going to stay home and that's going to be bad for them. And, you know, we're seeing that right now, obviously, but to say that, that it, I don't think it's in, in the culture necessarily. I think that that culture develops over time and it can develop. I believe, I, I'm, maybe I'm optimistic, but I think that that type of culture can exist anywhere. I don't think there's any, I don't think there's anything unique about Danes as people. <laughs> like, I don't think that they're, you know, superior in any way to, you know, Russians or Angolans or something like that. It's just that over time that has risen, the, the trust has risen over time and they've got this, for the most part, in a functional society, you've got kind of a good balance between those things. Now, just to get to your point about, um, you know, the uh, um, the growth, I think the deregulation point is, that, you know, any institution will seek to, you know, expand and get more powerful. Any, any institution, any individual, any, you know, that's a natural tendency. So a business will try and grow, right? Governments will do the same thing, right? They will, right? They will, if they can, they will expand. So, you see, you see this cycle where there's increasing intervention in the economy, usually for some sort of an emergency. So you had the 1930s, you know, had this, um, you know, this terrible depression, and then there was a war. Both of those things um, needed uh, government intervention, especially the war. I think there's a better case for that, right? That needs more of government's state intervention. Then a lot of those things remained in place, right? I don't know if you've read Basic Economics, but you by yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the those things stayed in place. So by the 1970s, you got this sort of choking, seizing structure in place, right? That's where the idea of laissez-faire. I don't think uh, laissez-faire means just take everything away. I think it means in you know all else being equal, it's better to let people transact as they wish than to intervene in most and, and unless you can prove otherwise, unless you can prove that there's going to be some sort of imminent threat as a result of that um, open that openness, right? And so ninety percent of the time, it's you know. So if we just take some local examples here in Canada, you know, um, just to take deregulation, right? So you have the airline industry in Canada is sort of partly deregulated. You've got, you know, you've got two major airlines, some smaller ones, but it's also protected from foreign competition, right? So that means that if I'm going to fly from Montreal to, to, to Vancouver or something like that, right? I, I don't, I can only fly on a Canadian airline. We have the same thing with um, uh, cellular telephone, uh, you know, uh, provision, right? So you, I can't buy a ticket from American Airlines and fly from Montreal to Vancouver. I have to buy, right? So if we were to open that up, the prices would go down. Now you could say, well, no, but then we're just going to be taken over by all these American airlines and European airlines that come in. That's true, except that that opening is almost always reciprocal, right? So if we were to open it up, they would open their markets. So Air Canada could fly from New York to Los Angeles and Chicago to Atlanta or whatever as well, Right. And there's very little evidence that it would actually, um, it, most of the time when those types of things open up and liberalize, you see expansion and more well-being most of the time, right? The, anyway, the concept of predatory pricing is another thing if you want me to keep, keep talking. Thomas Sowell talks a lot about how that actually is, um, makes doesn't make a lot of sense, uh, you know, if you play it out to its conclusion, right? Um, if you have... You know, predatory pricing, just to expose what it means, right? So the, the idea is that 
Walmart is going to come into Canada and it's going to drop prices to below even what they can, you know, charge to make money. And they're going to drive all the retailers out and they're going to become the main retailer. And then they're going to jack up the prices for all eternity, right? That's the theory. You really can't find an example where that's happened, right? The only cases where you see a predatory monopoly, I'm aware of, maybe you can tell me one, is um, when the government protects it. Right. The SAQ. Right. There's if you want to buy liquor in Quebec, right, you have to go to the SAQ. So they, you know, they charge. And then to me, there's two effects of that. So the prices are higher. Right. That's one negative effect. So, you know, the other negative effect is that guy who owns the Depreneur, he can't enrich his life by offering liquor. Right. So his life, in some senses, is made worse off as well. Right. So we have. Um, fewer opportunities for people when we have these types of government monopolies, but we have more opportunities when we disperse them, you know, but anyway. Well, th- but the typical depth, uh, and I, I'm really fascinated with the economics yeah. of depth, actually, or <laughs> for our listeners who live in New York, this is a bodega or a corner store, or like, yeah, it's yeah. a kind of an, an all-purpose kind of store that you can get everything from tampons to milk to bread to beer, cigarettes, uh, at the typical debt um, brings in 80 to 90% of their profit is from selling liquor, uh, cigarettes, beer. and beer. lottery tickets. Not liquor. They're not allowed to sell liquor. Well, yeah, I mean, like, I mean, beer booze, yeah. Yeah. booze, yeah. booze yeah. cigarettes, yeah. and lottery tickets. So yeah. uh, they are making money off of booze. No, but not from liquor, though. No, they're not no, from but they're so but I'm, they're they're making lots of they're they're actually the typical debt is is way more profitable than an SAQ. Well, that's because they're better run and better managed than the SAQ. That's probably. I mean, I don't know. That's an interesting um, uh, thing. But the SAQ has a has a centralized bureaucracy. It has. You know, these buyers, so you get this problem again with something like the SAQ where you've got a centralized system of buying. Then that means that the big wine and liquor producers, they fly the buyers over to Paris and to the south of France and try and wine and dine them because if they can convince that one guy, you know, he's going to buy all this wine. Whereas when you have different distributors competing, right, who's going to buy the, the, the stuff, the prices will go down, right? Yeah, for consumers now. I mean, you can say, "Well, who cares if people pay more for beer? You know, it's bad for their health and so on." You know, but again, I, I still think it's it's a smaller thing. It's it's a you know, you're right in 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 Quebec because the fact that beer is available in many parts of Canada, that's not the case, right? But, yeah. Well, there's. I mean, there is the other issue that you know, talking about how oh, we need to remove all barriers to. Trade and things like this, and this is necessarily going to uh, is necessarily going to produce like the best results. That that's clearly true um, with a number of things. In fact, I would maybe even right. say that's true with most things. But there's like there's plenty of things where that's where that's not true, and it usually kind of covers up. Uh, so if you look at what you know why why sort of, sort Finland, like, yeah like, yeah what why things, Finland was good yeah. at cell phones. Right or why or why the um, the United States was the powerhouse in the 19th century when they were still kind of a small country. It was largely because they they had a lot of protections on their own industries. 
And a lot, like you look all over the world at the economies that, uh, that have done really well and that are doing really well. They often have all sorts of like controls. They, they shelter certain industries to, to help them, uh, to help them grow and to give them advantages and things like that. And then after that, you know, when they become really big, they go on the world stage and say, you know, the way the United States has done at various points, like, okay, everybody just have like free trade and don't, don't have any protectionism. Don't protect any kind of industries when they're young. And you kind of look at American history and say, well, that's what you guys did. Like, that's, you know, you guys did this. In fact, like most of the economies that are really kicking ass did precisely that. So it's, it seems sort of disingenuous to yeah. say like, the United States had enormous foreign investment when it was a developing country in the 19th century, mostly from British capital. So it had it was fairly open to investment. That's a really key one, right? You have to allow capital. And again, you have to have a framework inside where if someone's going to come into your country and invest in, you know, building a railroad or whatever it's going to be, they don't want a fear that it's going to be, you know, t- you know, just the, the legal structure is going to change tomorrow. Thing, right? It's like, oh my God, now, you know, we invested $10 million and, you know, now it's all different. Or even worse, what you see in some places is seizures, right? Nationalization of things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, it's, I, I don't really agree necessarily, at least I don't see it the same way that the United States, I mean, that there was more protectionism in the past, generally speaking, across the world. You've seen less protectionism over time, and that's always reciprocal, right? Those things tend to be things you know, two entities, in this case, we're talking about countries, will get together and agree to, you know, and in some cases they can be multilateral. But the general axiom is still the same, that the more exchange you allow, generally speaking, it's going to be better for most people. Now, there are losers in this, right? We see, I mean, just to talk about the U.S. in in modern times, you know, this most recent um, period of open worldwide trade has created a very severe um, let's say a cleavage between um, certain segments of American society. And this is playing out in other countries as well, probably in this country to a lesser extent. But, you know, so you have some people who are more, you know, they live on the coast of San Francisco and they're more familiar with a restaurant in Beijing and they've, they've never been into Fresno or whatever. And there are people living in there that they would sort of look down upon, right? That, that's partly a result of this, you know, very highly open trade of the world is perhaps a negative effect. Too. I don't know how to solve that problem simply by putting up trade barriers. That cultural problem has been created. I don't, you know, I'm not sure how to deal with that, how to fit that into the economic structure. But it, there's no doubt that the that the openness of trade has led to more, um, you know, the, the rising of living standards in most places. Right. I mean, I think the I think the answer is you know what andrew yang says it's it's some sort of version of universal basic income because you know once you once you have that i think probably the most the most um scathing indictment that i've read of the present way of doing things it didn't come it's funny it didn't come from a which i would have expected it to come from it didn't come from like somebody who's a real sort of free market, um, you know, libertarian or, or didn't come from somebody. It came from 
David Graeber, who just died recently, quite suddenly. And uh, in his book, Bullshit Jobs, he, uh, he has a whole chapter devoted to um, why, why we need a universal basic income. And he says, you know, right now we have this policy all over, all over the industrialized world, uh, where, which came out of the Great Depression, which was saying that, okay, we need to have full employment because full employment is, you know, really good. You know, people will be making money, they'll have taxes. And as soon as people are unemployed, they become sort of the government's problem. And we, we want to have as few people in that side of the, in that category as possible, right? So you, so this is why, um, you know, he goes, we have this idea that corporate welfare is all a function of corruption that, you know, that you have these government officials that are in bed with the oil and gas industry or the car industry. And that's why they're giving them all these subsidies and all these breaks and things like that. And he says, actually, the truth is so much more depressing than that. Uh, he says, yes, sure. There's yeah. sometimes where it's, it's straight up corruption. Sure. But very often it's no money's changing hands. It's not corruption in the sense of like, muhahaha. it's more that they will, the Quebec government will give all sorts of money to Bombardier or the American government will give all sorts of money to GM or to Ford or Chrysler because not they Ford. don't want, they did Ford too. At one point, Ford they, gave, well, right, okay. Ford. they gave Ford lots of money. Yeah, okay. and they, but it's always on the reasoning that we don't want to lose all of those jobs, right? Because right. all those jobs, it's they're voters. They're voters. That's, yeah. that's one reason, right? Yeah. But but it ends up being it ends up being probably you know as David Graeber says, it's one of the most perverse uh, forms of trickle down economics that he says I can't think yeah. of any. Because you're you're literally paying. I agree. Uh, you're paying like twice a person's salary to keep them in the job. It's like if you would just give them the money directly, some in some other way, that would actually be way cheaper. I, I think Thomas Sowell would agree that that's complete. In fact, I've read pieces by him where he points out when you subsidize an industry in some way, you you know that you effectively are paying these people way too much to do something that you would be better off. If the industry were, let's say the 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 aeronautics industry in Quebec, let's imagine this sort of worst case scenario that it just completely died because the government, you know, but that would still be better in the longer run because then, you know, that because then we, those people would maybe go do something more interesting that like, you know, like better for them or something like that, right? Yeah, I, I guess one of the, yeah. no, I do, one of the questions, I was looking at sort of people who grew up in the same milieu as Thomas Sowell. And one person that immediately came to mind as an interesting parallel was um, Daniel Bell, you know, the great American intellectual. And he, he also had a similar trajectory where he started off as a Marxist and then he gradually uh, shifted. He became a hardcore like cult warrior and he became, um, you know, very kind of a cold warrior and very kind of conservative right wing guy. But he also, he did something that, that I've never seen. Maybe Thomas Sowell did this. I mean, it's incredibly prolific. Maybe he did this somewhere that I'm not aware of. But in everything I've read of Thomas Sowell, I've never seen him address 
um, that contradiction that I mentioned before between a commitment to the tragic vision and a commitment to free, just like a very kind of laissez-faire attitude towards economists. But Daniel Bell wrote a book uh, which in conservative circles is considered an absolute classic. It's called um, The Cultural Contradictions of Capitalism in 1976. And he he addressed this question head on. And he said that there is this, there is this problem, uh, which is that capitalism tends to sort of encourage um, certain kinds of worldviews and certain kinds of you know, ways of being in the world, which end up making you a bad capitalist. So it's like, it's, it's, it seems very strange, but the people who often um, are, are best at capitalism are people who come from, you know, various minority groups, religious minority groups, or various who have, um, you know, have a real commitment to hard work and diligence and who have, you know, within their, their group, they have a great deal of kind of trust. And you see this in many groups all over the world that are very much involved in, in trade. You can look at um, Han Chinese all over Southeast Asia and Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore. Middlemen minorities, I think they're called. Yeah, they're sort of like yeah. South, South Asians in yeah. East Africa and other places, and then Jews in a lot of places. Um, there's There are these like minority groups that end up really kicking ass at trade and at, like they, they kick ass at capitalism. But the reason why they kick ass is to some extent because of stuff that have nothing to do with capitalism. And if their kids just grow up and are completely assimilated into the mainstream consumer culture, chances are their kids are going to suck at being capitalists. Well, there's evidence for that, yeah, with with the Chinese. I think third-generation Chinese Americans are nowhere near as well off as their grandparents and the first few generations in the United States. That's just some proof. I think that's probably true, right? Yeah, well, this is, I I think there was, um, what was the book called? It was uh, the the full package. I think that was what it was called, and it, it's Amy Chua. And Amy Chua, yeah. yeah. yeah That's who I'm referring to. I'm actually yeah. referencing her. Yeah, yeah. And her husband, they wrote that book, The Full Package, which was, it looked at um, Han Chinese, Hindu South, South Asians, Mormons and Jews in the United States. And these are three minority groups that punch way, way above their weight. Economically. Almost, Economically, but not in other areas there that we could talk about, right? Like, I mean, like, like you, you could just look at economics, but what about like if you included the greatest uh, musical um, geniuses of the past seventy-five years, right? You wouldn't find too many Chinese Americans in that. You would find a lot of African Americans, you know. In that yeah, case, right. And tons but, of I mean, Jews so it's, as it's well. Not, yeah, so. yeah, a lot of Jews too. Yeah, the Jews are an interesting. Yeah. Uh, depending, you mean the music producers? Like, I'm not sure. Or, oh, even musicians. That's been, I mean, they've been, but I mean, their, their point was that, you know, and this is kind of Daniel Bell's point, is that there is this, generally speaking, um, if you have, if you have a system, it tends to reproduce itself. That is the norm, right? So, and capitalism seems, Daniel Bell's point is capitalism seems to be strange 
in in the sense that it's a system that the more that the more thoroughly people adopt it 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 tends to extinguish itself right. it tends to actually suck up all the oxygen in the room and then not uh, not not be able to go on so that's why capitalism is constantly um, of necessity is always looking for new markets and new places you know emerging markets and is always bringing in more and more people into the fold and very often those people who are brought into the fold uh, do very well at that system but to the extent to which they do well um, the kids probably will not be good at it which is, which is this right. weird which is this weird contradiction well, Daniel well, Bell yeah. was saying you know there's yeah. there's you have to you know who knows if there's a solution to this this well, it also raises, to me, this raises sort of some philosophical questions about what's important, right? So we're, we're looking at, we're measuring importance and success on, you know, just on basically on income and wealth. Right? That's what we're doing right now, right? So we're saying a group of people who they make a lot of money and they own a lot of stuff or whatever they're doing really well. There are other things you could, like if you took a Sowellian analysis, you know how Thomas Sowell goes to like Malaysia and like digs through archives to try and find the differences between the, the Malays and, and the Chinese in that country. I don't know if you've read those studies. That he no, I haven't yeah, read that. He's, he's, That's really he's interesting. Gone, he's gone into great detail about this, trying to explain, you know, the, the exactly what you're talking about, why certain groups do better and why other ones don't. But you, like, I find it fascinating to, to read about because he talks about how the Malays, they dominate the political system in that country and they, uh, you know... Um, uh, the other social institutions as well, but they're but they're like totally absent in the businesses and the and the sciences and things like this. It's very interesting. It's very um, and so again, it goes back to what you're saying. But if if you take a look at like what's important, right? So you could look at our wonderful province, Quebec, right? You could see some similar patterns, right? A Jewish minority that has done exceptionally well. You could also see the, uh, you know, the, the creation, the 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 creation of Quebec as a British entity, with a with an anglophone minority that was very important in um, in business. You could break down the groups: Scottish Canadians being really big in business and engineering and stuff like this, and say, "Wow, that's interesting." Similar type of a of a you know analysis. Then you could say, "Well, what about the French Canadians? Right? They seem to be." Um, lower economically throughout history, which is true. And in fact, Franco-Americans, if you look at um, people from Quebec, mostly from Quebec, who emigrated to the United States, even to this day have lower income than other Americans. I don't know if you knew that, but that's also- I did not know that, no. Yeah. So you wonder, what's that about? Then you look around, you say, what was important to people in Quebec, especially in small towns? Well, you know, they had, they had a community. They would always build- an incredible church, you know, you go around, it's something just amazes me, you know, not just in Montreal, but you go to any town in Quebec and you just see this spectacular stonemasonry, you know, right? And yeah. What built that? That wasn't some sort of an economic, like that was something where those, they valued that. They wanted to have a beautiful church. It was a status thing. And then, you know, the stone, they got really good at stonemasonry. This is something you see. So you see some generation over generation people working in stone and artistic things, you know, and you see yeah. all francophones going into the law. There was, a, you know, sort of the clerical element of the society was, you know, but years ago I worked in a, um, 
you know. I, I'm so glad you pointed that out because that's really? it's something that I've tried to explain to my American relatives and friends, and they they always just it's you really have to see it to to understand yeah. like how it's like you go to this place, <laughs> yeah. you go to this like small town in Quebec, There's like 200 that, people there. That's, that's, yeah. yeah, and it's you look at like it's never had a population more than sort of 2,000, 3,000 people ever in its history. It's in this desolate wasteland. It doesn't have a lot of resources. It's not as if they're sitting next to some massive, you know, diamond mine or most productive agricultural land in the world or like, you know, oil and gas, like reserves. Or It's it's like in this place where it's it's winter for six, seven months out of the year. It's cold. It doesn't have a lot of natural resources. And they've got this stunning Catholic church that yeah. is just like to build something like that with the kind of the kind of artistry that went in, like you say, the stonemasons, the, the woodwork, the, everything. Yeah, no, it incredible. would just cost like it would cost hundreds of millions of dollars to build people like that today. And these poor communities they like did it. over they did it over I mean, it's, it's sort of i was trying to explain it to one of my cousins and i said you know you go to like a small town in iowa or in new hampshire and you see the church and it's like this sober protestant all white church with a little cross at the front it, it looks like it fits the town right, right. like but imagine right. if you went to some small town in the middle of iowa and they had a giant opera <laughs> hall like a giant beautiful like palatial opera hall and and they had a play like and you're like how did they put up this huge like and then they had like a massive museum you know yeah. with all sorts of like monets and like you know, picassos and stuff like that you how the fuck did they afford this shit yeah. it's it's well because, it, it also like it, you say it's yeah. what they prioritized it's also interesting because these things, I mean, Soul talks extensively about these things, how past intergenerationally, right? So it's like, you know, um, so he studies, for example, German immigrants in, in Canada and the United States and Brazil, and he finds all these similarities between, and even their descendants, right? You know, so years ago, I worked for this, uh, for, for a multimedia company and for about a couple of years, and I was a producer there. And I started, the company grew very quickly. We made like websites and things like that. So they producers and there were people who worked on the finance end and there were there were uh, graphic artists and programmers and I started to notice as the company got really big that you could see differences in the kind of people who were graphic artists or the kind of people who were programmers like the graphic artists were almost entirely French Canadians right and yet there were almost nobody in the finance end who were of very few who were much fewer not nobody but a lot smaller percentage let's say you know so you look at that and you think, well, why is that, right? Why would young Francophones growing up in the 1990s you know, be much more likely to go and study how to use Photoshop and try and get a job, <laughs> right, as opposed to studying finance or something like that? And many also study finance. But you wonder if the, these things, you know, they create different outcomes. Some of them may end up with, you know, um, you might have people who end up on average poorer in some cases because of the choices they make. Right. So if you look at Irish immigrants to the United States who tended to go into politics and becoming cops and stuff like that, they didn't do as well financially as, um, you know, uh, say the Jewish immigrants. Right. Who started business, yeah. did all the stuff. Right. So does that mean I mean, you know, those differences between Jewish immigrants and Irish immigrants, you know, the Irish 
Thomas Sowell's bo uh, books about these two groups are really fascinating. You should, I don't know if you've read them, but the Irish being really big in unions and in the law. Like if you look at the um, the the, uh, the political systems in the 19th, late nineteenth century, early twentieth century in the U.S., like the the, the cities, you know, like the town, yeah. all that kind of stuff, all dominated by Irish immigrants, and yet they were poor, right? The rest of them, you know, living down in the slums and everything, were extremely poor, you know. Yeah, I read I read his comparison. This is like he did this when he was a young man, but I read his his comparison of uh, the Jews and the Irish in Chicago, where he looks at how he says this is a really nice natural experiment because you have these uh, two groups. They both came to um, to the Chicago area in large numbers at about the same point in history. Right. These big waves. And they came with um, with very similar. Most of them did not come with uh, any any resources to speak poor. of. Very yeah, they're very poor. Uh, and then he sort of goes in the pros and cons like categories as well. You know, the Irish. Um, one thing they had going for them is that you know, at least they spoke the language of the majority well. Right. Um, with with a, and a lot of the Jews who came did not speak English. They had to learn English. So he's like, okay, so uh, at one point Irish, you know, and then he goes right, through different right. things. But he says how you know within within a generation, the uh, the Jewish immigrants were doing much much better than the Irish immigrants, and then within two generations, it was just night and day and he talks about like you know why is this and so you know what did the uh what did the irish the irish community tend to put their what did they invest in and what did they politics. Politics. well uh, politics getting into like uh into law enforcement into politics into uh union jobs into various things like that and then meanwhile the the Jews in general tended to go more into uh, entrepreneurial ventures, into uh, trades to some extent, and you know, energy education, right. all of which ended up uh, paying off and doing being a better kind of. He also did. He also mention the different customs and habits because I yeah. Some oh point, yeah, yeah, yeah. He uh, talks about how to drink more and do you know, that kind of thing, which is yeah. interesting. Oh, too. he talks about and he even yeah. talks about the drinking thing. How <laughs> even that is uh, is is culturally dependent. So he says the the Italian immigrants, um, on average, in terms of their yearly consumption of alcohol, drank just as much as the Irish um, immigrants. But they had practically none of the social dysfunction of the um, Irish, and this is because he says the the Italians were drinking um, primarily, like the vast majority of them were drinking at the table with right. the family right. in a meal. <laughs> and meanwhile, the Irish were the guys were going out to the par by themselves, drinking all their pay, going to houses, getting right. into fights. Yeah, yeah, so exactly. you, yeah. you have uh, you have in one instance you have alcohol being used as a, a social lubricant to bring a family together. Closer together so they're laughing and joking and having fun and, and bonding <laughs> yeah. more. Right. Yeah. Uh, in another one, you're using it's alcohol. Yeah. It, yeah. Alcohol causes like massive 
social dysfunction. It's exactly the same substance, right? But yeah, um, <laughs> but the way it's used. Yeah, I think I I definitely like his um, his. I, I guess you would call it almost like cultural geography. It's a very sort of he tries to see, you know, how do certain cultural practices persist and evolve over time and and predict outcomes you know and determine outcomes yeah just a quick question there john what do you think about his theory about southern or at least like american black culture being a kind of a, a you know his basic theory is that these immigrants came to the u.s south from the border regions of scotland and england that were very violent and dangerous before the united kingdom went through its transformations scotland right and they went to the u.s south they had these habits of you know, religious observance where they'd all eyes would roll back in their head and they would get into fights and they were all this stuff. And that that somehow transmogrified to the after the slave community there. This is his theory, you know, and that those maintained within the the black community in the South and in the North, because the immigrants, the migrants, the black migrants to the Northern United States, like big cities like Detroit, they tended to be segregated through, you know, from racism, right? They'd end up in their own communities. They wouldn't integrate into the population the way the Southern whites would in places like Detroit or New York. So he believes that these things that we associate with black English and, and so on actually come from, um, you know, the, the, um, from the Scottish, you know, whatever these, these people a long time ago, You've read that book, right, John? Yes, yeah. Like, yeah. I was actually the, you, yeah. That was the first one I read of his, actually, because I thought it was such a <laughs> provocative <laughs> thesis. So I, the first time I heard of it, I was like, "What the fuck?" <laughs> like, so um, I think it's, I think it's a, I think it's an interesting argument. I'm not, I'm, I tend to be, I don't really know if it's true. I feel there's a whole bunch of information that I think I would, I would need to. Um, I would need to have and, and to learn to be able to like evaluate whether that's true or not. I tend to think that um, it's it's much more it's much more a function of uh, of nature rather than culture. And what I mean by that is, I think uh, we have got to the top of the food chain. We've been extremely successful as a species um, because we're we're very good at cooperation we're incredibly good at cooperation we're very and that's you know this is one of the things I, I try and tell my students is you know I know you keep hearing that the the characteristic the central characteristic of of business and economics is ruthless competition and all this stuff but actually the central feature from an ethological standpoint if you're just looking at humans as animals the central most glaring thing that jumps out at you when you look at the world of business is incredible degree of cooperation, like so much cooperation, so much honesty, so much trust, so much morality, so much people doing the right thing, even when they can get away with doing the wrong thing like that. And that even that characterizes even the uh, black market trades in, in sure. arms or drugs like if if people actually you know that the expression honor among thieves like if there was not honor among thieves it wouldn't uh, work. There, there, thievery wouldn't work <laughs> like crime crime yeah. like they talk about organized crime crime only works because it's organized yeah like disorganized crime doesn't work 
like it not not for very long i mean like you get so it's you have to be able to trust people and and, well, this gets, yeah. it gets back to this idea that, I mean, effectively, you can think of humans when they interact with each other, when they're strangers, like let's say, let's say two groups of people live close to each other, right? Like two tribes or nations or whatever. There's two ways they can interact, really, that they, they can fight with each other. And then they can, one can try and dominate the other and take all his stuff or their stuff or whatever, right? Or they can exchange peacefully. Right, they can go and trade things with each other. You know, maybe mm-hmm. one group makes better at making spears, the other group is better at cutting. Maybe they live closer to the water or something, so they can get fish and they can sell them fish from the spears or something. Right, and you see this dynamic all through history. Right, and so the I think in the Sowellian and the Stephen Pinker and different you know people like this, what they really are saying is that these two elements exist in our nature, and we want to try and you know encourage the peaceful exchange element. Right, the, exactly what you're talking about, right? the cooperation element, as opposed to the dominance and fighting element. As a you know, and we can't get rid of you know the the, the fighting that you know the 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 way of fighting. That's part of our nature as well. And there's always going to be some criminal. Some criminality is people doing that, right? Like people just stealing from other people, taking their stuff. You know, you can't get rid of it completely. You can drop it down, but you can't get it down to zero, right? Hmm. Yeah. Well, I I think, and that's why I think I I tend to see it as being much more, like better to think about it as a function of nature than culture. So I think, right, right. It, it, depending upon, uh, to give you sort of an analogy to to um, one of our relatives, the uh, there's these monkeys in Southeast Asia, and they you find them. I I've seen them in the wild. They're really cool looking, but. You see them in, in Malaysia and Indonesia and on islands, and you can see them in Singapore even. Like, but they, um, I'm blanking on the name of the, they're like golden something, uh, but they're really really cool. But apparently these these monkeys they have a, a flexible social organization, and it depends on uh, it depends on sort of outside pressures. So there's this giant eagle that eats monkeys <laughs> it's like it, it's like one of the i think it's like if it's not the biggest eagle in the world it's one of the biggest eagles like the thing is uh, like, fuck it, fucking right huge there. like it, it like stands like three feet tall wow. it's got a massive massive they eat monkeys so on islands that are in malaysia and indonesia and the philippines and uh, papua new guinea where these monkeys are found on islands that are completely covered in forests so that it's like the forest is thick it's just really hard for the eagles to like get in and get the monkeys right um on those islands the monkeys tend to live in pretty small groups um they and they there's quite a bit of conflict within groups and quite a bit of conflict um between groups Right. There's like you, you see them fighting a lot and like right. fighting over territory and doing stuff like that. And then there's some islands where there's uh, the, the forest cover is, is more sparse and there's lots of spaces between the trees. And so the eagles can get at the monkeys pretty easily in those places. Well, on those islands, the monkeys uh, tend to live in much larger troops. So whereas on the, the heavily forested islands, they might live in groups of 20 or 30 um, in the islands that where there's more predation threats. 
they, um, they'll live in groups of 150 to 200 and they'll have lots of monkeys who are on guard duty all the time. And then also their organization is very different. So on those islands, uh, there are um, alpha males and alpha females within the group that heavily police conflict within the group. Right. So if, if two people start, if two monkeys start fighting, they immediately are on them, kicking the shit out of them. Like, you know, right. quit your, quit your shit, you know, before it like kind of. Before the eagle big. comes in and kills both of you kind of thing. You know? Well, because they, yeah. they seem to, they seem to sort of recognize there's like an emergent order where they recognize that in order to survive, we have to have much higher degrees of cohesion and cooperation. And what's interesting is that these, these social structures are so flexible that if you have, um, there, there's been on islands where they've done heavy uh, deforestation you know, for the logging of islands. So they've taken an island that was heavily covered and suddenly uh, gotten rid of like 50% of the trees. So it's more, so now the monkeys are, and what you see is the small groups coalesce, coalesce uh, into wow. bigger groups and they change their, their organization. And the same thing for islands where um, the, the forest grows back and it becomes heavily, well, you get, you get like separatist movements within right, right, right. and they go off and right. form like smaller groups and so, you have so much more happens, conflict. Just can I ask something quickly there? They, they, that happens fast enough that they don't get killed. Like the deforestation gets done and then all of a sudden the monks start getting killed. So they actually start banding together quickly. Yeah. Yeah, they, 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 it's right. quite flexible. They, yeah. And I think, I think humans do the same thing. And so I think if you look at what happens in prisons, yeah. there's an, there's an, a, an emergent order, order that comes in prisons or in like subcultures where whenever you have the absence of a Leviathan, when you have the absence of some sort of central uh, power that keeps the peace and that, mm-hmm. and that imposes, when you have that, well, then suddenly people, need to become much more tribal and yeah. they need to become much more kind of wired and on edge and they become much more sensitive to insults and they have to respond. Yeah. There's probably the saddest example of this I've seen. Did you see on Netflix, the, um, they had that movie, the central park five. Uh, is that the one about those guys in New York, the, um, the, were uh, that Donald Trump, I think he said they should die or something. Or yes, something. yeah. Is is well, the they were basically the Central Park Five was these. There was this white woman who was a jogger, and she was like, like really violently raped and beaten and left for dead. She was in a coma for for like months, and um, and these five kind of. Uh, five kind of black and Latino, I think it was one of those Latino uh, teenagers were picked up on incredibly flimsy evidence and were railroaded and put into prison. And even though lots of evidence was coming out that, uh, that showed that it was not them, um, they just kept railroading them. So they went to jail for a really long time. Eventually they were the guy. Who, when, when they see us, I think is the Netflix dramatization. I think it's called when they see us, I believe. Is that what it is? Okay. Well then it's I'm, called, yeah. I, I'm think you, uh, I think you posted I'm, I'm about swishing it together, swishing yeah. together to, yeah. so the, you're totally right. Yeah. When they see us, yeah, that's, I, I just looked it up. Yeah. <laughs> so the, uh, 
in that in when they see us there's this one uh there's this one scene where this this kid who's been he was put in jail when he was a teenager he was like 17 he was beaten raped repeatedly raped beaten to the end of his life in prison he finally gets out he's exonerated uh, but you see and I, I was actually thinking of soul's thesis when i when i watched this this uh netflix movie or series is you see that he's trying to reintegrate into regular life, but because he's been socialized in prison to be so touchy about honor and shame and so touchy about like somebody just in any way kind of insulting him or dissing him that he needs to respond with this incredible overreaction, right? And, but of course that kind of way of being, it's, it's, uh, it makes sense in like in a dangerous dangerous environment but in a civilized environment this is uh incredibly like bad it's it's actually going to turn people off it's going to make people like you're going to get fired from jobs people aren't you know going to want to be in a relationship with you that are not going to want to live with you and so i think like i don't think you need recourse to you know the scots irish uh, touchy shepherds in the yeah. Scottish yeah. Highlands. I don't think you need reference to that. I think all you need is to look at uh, what happens to humans in different environments. So if you put a bunch of people, like I saw this in Baltimore, right? Like when I was living there, in poor black neighborhoods, uh, predominantly black uh, ghettos in Baltimore, the police basically don't show up. Yeah. Like you can call the police. You can call like I could call the police if you're in the wrong neighborhood in Baltimore. If you call the police and say there's somebody breaking into my house right now. Uh, he says he's going to rob me and like you know rape me and he's got a gun. Um, they're not going to be there in two minutes. Yeah. They're not going to be there in five minutes. You're lucky if they'll be there in an hour, two hours, and they're only going to go into those neighborhoods if they can come in as an invading army with like a helicopter with lights with armored personnel vehicles like they go in like an invading army like they won't go they won't go in without backup put it that way right That's so if you have yeah. Yeah. if you have a situation where basically it's it's you know like it's similarly in a maximum security prison usually the ratio of guards to inmates is 1 to 200 so there's no way that they can be watching what's happening all the time. There's literally just not enough of them. Right. Right? And, and the, the idea that somehow the video cameras are going to capture that stuff, that's, you have to have somebody looking at the video cameras and there's not enough people to look at it. And well, there's lots also, of ways to also, get around that. Also, a lot of them are violent, disagreeable people. Anyway. Not all of them. I mean, some of them are just kids like that kid who got sent there, but you sort of have this mixture of the lack of Leviathan with just enough people who are predatory in the same place. Right. You know? Yes. Right. Yeah. But my, my point being is, is I think if you take a bunch of humans and you put them in an environment where there is law and order and there's stability and peace, well then humans will, res- most humans will respond yeah, in a I certain agree. way to that environment. And if you put them into an environment where there is no um, safety and security and peace. Well, they'll respond. And then, of course, there's, there's people who have been extremely socialized to uh, 
um, to living in a peaceful society who, like many progressives and libertarians, have illusions about what it would be like to, you know, if, if you were to put them in like a, a dangerous neighborhood in Baltimore, they would just get their asses. They'd get in trouble so fast because they're so stupid and naive and they would take dumb choices and they wouldn't be street smart, right? But then the flip side is if you have people who are, uh, have been, who've been totally social. Like I remember this one friend of my sister's, he was really into the whole punk scene, the squeegee punk scheme. And we ran into him once on, um, on the bus going back to Verdun. And like, it was later, it was on like one of those night buses. Like we were coming back from the bars and everything. And like, and he, he was saying, he was already into heroin at that point and he was like he was trying to smell like a homeless person and um and so my sister said to him like so you know how much longer are you going to do this because his pretense this is bullshit of course his pretense was that he was doing sort of research to write a book on homeless life and he wanted to write a novel and it's bullshit he's just an addict but whatever but he he kind of he said this this is a story he told his family and everything mm-hmm. And he, I remember him saying, really made a big impression on me. He said, well, I'm going to stay for just a little bit longer, uh, but I want to, I, I don't want to stay so long that I turn into an asshole. <laughs> and I said, I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, if you're in that environment for too long, uh, you just don't know how to switch out of that gear. So you're always thinking about uh, people stealing your wallet or stealing your bag or stealing your stuff or you just have to be on edge all the time and you're always sort of thinking about you know what are all the bad things that could happen in this situation how could how can i anticipate them and that uh, at a certain point if you're thinking like that all the time um it it undermines your relationships with normal civilized people all your bandwidth Right. I mean, you, you can't yes. divert yeah. any of your energy to trying to figure out how to do, you know, make it. Also, you lose sight of the um, accumulative benefits of, you know, spending 10 percent of your day doing X and over, you know, a two years time or whatever. You're going to get a benefit from that. You you don't have any time to do that. You don't, you don't understand how that can ever work because you're constantly just, you know, living for the moment to keep yourself from dying. Right. Something like that. Right. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's, uh, it takes up a lot of, it takes up, you know, a lot of time, but I, I find, I like, you know, our last guest that we had on, uh, Joseph Henrik, his book, you know, the, the weirdest people in the world. And he argues that, um, you can't really have capitalism and democracy and things like that. You can't, those things are not going to work unless you first have a particular kind of psychology. And you have to you have to first kind of break down people's tribalism and people's connection to uh, to their their kin, and you have to you have to break people down more into nuclear families and individuals, and then that's when they can actually you know they can work in these systems more because if they if they're still in that hyper tribal mode which identity politics seems to be revive, reviving in a big way, um, that it, it, um, it, it kind of it causes all of these 
other systems to not work properly. Because rather than, you know, the, the, one of the examples he gives is he says, uh, if you have people that are very, very tribal, uh, well, they're going to give the contract or they're going to give their business to somebody who's a member of their group, even yeah. if that person is charging more for a shittier product. Like they'll give that person the business because they, you know, keep it all in the family, so to speak, right? And so because of doing that, they're rewarding uh, businesses that are actually really should probably fail. And um, and they're creating kind of inefficiencies and in the in the market. So markets don't work very well in places where people are very tribal. That's yeah. his, uh, his sort of point, right? There also seems to be, I mean, you mentioned uh, capitalism, democracy, and, and markets and so on. These are all sort of independent from the other. Like democracy is a separate thing that developed, that took longer to develop, right? Like it's like if you, just this book I was reading by Soul today, he was talking about in the United Kingdom, how they gradually managed to bring the constituent elements, you know, that even Scotland itself was some divided, right, between the, the highlands and lowlands. And they managed to bring it together and, and put the stability exactly what you're talking about, right? So gradually suppress these tribal conflicts and people could, you know, ensure stability and also changing the, the cultural elements would change over time as well because of all that. But democracy did not come like the general franchise until way later in the 19th century, right? Wonder, Amy Chua has mentioned this before, that when you democratize a place that has all these tribal elements without having, you know, it's natural to vote in a sort of, you know, tribalist way for, you know, like that's just, what else would you do, right? That's, uh, yeah. you know? and so you wonder, it's not clear that democracy is something, I mean, I, like I'm, I'm obviously I'm in favor of democracy. I think it's the, you know, the, the, the worst system except for all the others and all that stuff. But it's not clear. Democracy also has a system of incentives that can be easily perverted and they can be perverted over time. It's not clear how to solve that problem, right? Because now we see, you mentioned the identity politics thing, right? We're starting to see this type of tribalism enter into our political system to some extent, yeah. always existed there to some degree. I mean, you know, you have seen you posting about this, you know, there's always been some uh, element of this in Canada. You know, the governor general, for example, switches back and forth between uh, a, fran a francophone and an anglophone and stuff like that. So maybe things like that can be in place that can help it, you know, help bring some sort of unity to some extent if you have a um, to, to a certain degree, in, you know, but but when it takes over, you're talking about what I'm hearing you say is when the tribalism takes over to the point where it's like, I'm in my group and we're going to do everything we can to get our people to have the contracts and control the state and do the whole system, right? Yeah, yeah. And it, it solve that problem, you know? No, there's not. I mean, I would just, to, to return to what you said just before, the, the link between, that I would say, between democracy and, and capitalism and free markets and all that stuff. I, I like the way that uh, Yuval Noah Harari sort of unifies those things. And he says, actually, what, you, what unites them is they're all sort of, they spoke off of uh, what he calls uh, liberal humanism. Right? So he says liberal humanism uh, is, he looks at it as a religion. Um, and he says that it's a religion that says that ultimate authority is to be found not in God or in some sacred text or in 
uh, something like that, but that the ultimate authority is to be found in the individual, in uh, the individual's sort of preferences and will. And so, um, you know, so many things like from our society, like democracy as we conceive of it is predicated, and Sowell talks about this, is predicated on the idea that um, people know uh, on in the aggregate, not all of them individually, but on average, people know what's good for them better than experts do. So people know what to spend their money on better than experts do. People know what to invest in better than you know other people do than the government does. Or and people, and so you should trust people. Uh, you give people the vote because you believe that the citizenry, on average is reasonable and decent and smart and they know what's good for them. Um, and that that's kind of the assumption right now. You have lots of people, uh, whether it's the, you know, what Thomas Sowell calls the, the anointed um, who believes that uh, basically the people are idiots and that yeah. experts should decide uh, what, you know, what is, what is good for people that experts now what I find, you know, to, to a large extent, I, I agree with that. And I think he's, he's definitely onto something. I just don't know how, once again, I don't know how he squares that with his, um, his talk about economics, because when it comes to the subject of economics, he sounds exactly like one of the anointed. He's constantly talking about how the idiots don't understand yeah. economics and like, only people who are economically literate, which, you know, when you, when you scratch the surface, I, I'm friends with a number of economists of various left-wing, right-wing, centrist, libertarian, and people who have PhDs in economics. And almost without exception, they've told me that uh, Thomas Sowell is a great thinker, but on economics, he's, he has a pretty narrow view of economics. And so it's sort of like, uh, like an evangelical Christian telling me, like, you need religion, right? They don't mean religion in general. They mean evangelical Protestant Christianity, right? They don't mean, and so when he says, like, people are economically illiterate, usually what he actually means by that is not agreeing with my view of economics, yeah. right? Which is not, like, his view of economics is not in any way the prevailing view, even among classical economists. Like his, his view is seen as being quite University of Chicago, quite, um, you know, fundamentalist. I think in terms of his views on economics, he, economics has become much more scientific. This is my sort of outsider's understanding. It's become much more, you know, sort of looking at algorithm things like this and mathematical models and things like that, and also creating experiments, right? So you create these sort of lab experiments and you run them. Thomas Sowell doesn't really do that. He seems, if, if you read Adam Smith, he seems to use Adam Smith's model as the way of orienting himself in it, much as he has a theory, like you say, his belief that the law of supply and demand is likely to prevail over, you know, intervention, let's say, Right. And then he takes a look at the world and he tries to see instances where that might be true or not true and gather evidence from everything from novels to, you know, Adam Smith did pretty much the same thing in The Wealth of Nations because there was no economics, you know, there were no 
papers to go and dig up the experiments that people had run or whatever, right? That was, you know, he was the first one to do it. So I think that Soul's economics is a kind of older style of economics, I think. That's my impression. I don't know. I'm, I'm very much a hobbyist of economics. It's not my field. I'm a, you know, I have a different set of, uh, you know, I study different things. Um, you know, my, my background uh, is different from that. But like I said, I, I became an amateur at it after the financial crisis. And that's my view. He seems to have this almost like a holistic view of how to view things things and i don't know yeah how- well, I, I think i think my problem my problem in general with his the way that he deals with things like government intervention and with markets is that he tends to and he it's funny because I, I was talking to uh, the other day to uh jacob jacob levy about this who is a political theorist um, at mcgill and he's he he was really I mean, he's a very, you know, he's a libertarian and he was a big fan of Thomas Sowell when he was younger and, uh, and Anne Rand and all of that stuff. And, and he said, yeah, he goes like, I, I still like, I learned a great deal from him, but he said that the irony of Thomas Sowell is that he's this guy who is, you know, he rails against people who oversimplify a great deal and mm-hmm. his critique of people oversimplifying things is excellent but then he goes on to oversimplify like crazy and it's like it's like dude like why don't you like you know doctor heal like physician heal thyself like so for instance one thing that i found annoying in um especially in his book uh the quest for cosmic justice where he he sort of whenever he's talking about how evil government intervention is he always looks to uh, to let's say like china under mao or soviet union under stalin or like you know mussolini he looks to these like horrible like examples which were horrible no doubt like and he and so all government intervention this classic example of a slippery slope argument all government intervention naturally leads to this horrific outcome and then when he's talking about uh, business and free markets, he tends to sort of rely on a very idealized view of of business and of the economy, which, like I, you know, like I said in that sort of thread where we were discussing this, like it it seems like it applies perfectly well to adapt, right, to the economy of adapt, absolutely, like, and to small businesses and maybe even medium sized businesses, but. His analysis just doesn't it doesn't make sense if you're trying to explain Amazon or Google or Facebook these giant organizations that have have the the power to you know manipulate. Like there's more, there are more lobbyists right now in Washington D.C. Um, representing Facebook than there are members in both houses of Congress combined. These are all people that are making a minimum of $185,000 a year uh, to lobby on behalf of, like, that is, when you're wielding that, when you have that many smart, highly motivated people um, working towards a particular end, like, that's not a, they can distort the market in all sorts of, you know, amazing ways. And that's not, that's not sort of, 
what Adam I, Smith. Totally that's agree. not what Adam. That's not what Adam Smith had in mind. Adam like, Smith hated big, huge businesses like that. If you read his books, he talked about the East India Company with the most exactly on the terms that you're talking about. How they had distorted British government policy and everything. There's an economist called Mike Munger who talks about this. Gets back to what I was saying before about how institutions, as they get bigger, Mike he talks about how any business as it gets bigger, it you know it's when it makes more investments as it gets bigger. It, initially, it sort of you know diversifies, you know, opens up other sectors and spends money on research and development and everything. Then it reaches a point where every dollar it spends will get a better return from trying to influence government. It does get back to government control, right? They start investing. This is what the social media companies are trying to do. They're trying to influence the state so the state can use the awesome power of the, you know, the, the you know, the, the monopoly on violence, let's say, right? That's the definition of a state, right? So they're trying to, I mean, most of what I understand, little I understand about the big social media companies is they seem to want some form of regulation. And this is one of these things that's kind of like a flare, right? When you see a company that is in an industry and they want the government to regulate that industry, that's kind of like a red flag. Like, why would they want rules? Well, the reason is because they want to set the rules up in such a way so that they can exclude competitors from getting into the market. So I don't really see anything incompatible with so like, the, you know, you can, Adam Smith was just, you know, vicious against the Dutch East India Company. He was very complimentary about the Hudson Bay Company. There's a long section of his book. I don't know if you've read The Wealth of Nations. This I have. I have. Yeah. I don't know if you remember this part. There's a long section where he went through about how their books were really well kept and they were sort of careful. They never went and went to the government for loans or anything like that. Like they were, and the part of the reason for that is that it was a relatively small company, a poor part of the world, right? The East India company was this behemoth that was dealing with the sort of the riches of the world at that time. Right. Yeah. And all that stuff from India that was this huge, you know, sort of attracted the, uh, the, the, the more venal elements that are going to try and, you know, uh, so I don't really see, I mean, I, I understand your point about the, um, you know, the way that he switches back and forth from, you know, from hating on the anointed to becoming kind of like an anointed, I think is, that's kind of how I heard it. I don't know if that's, I don't want to caricature what you were saying, but I, I can totally get that. But I don't really see a contradiction in, in the laissez-faire, like, like in the sense that it still comes back to the idea that there, you know, if you believe there has to be a state, what should that state do? And then if you're an entity and you can influence that state in your favor, if you're big enough to do that, maybe you're going to do that. Right. And I don't think that, I don't think that's a good thing, but I don't think it contradicts the idea that the best way for things to play out over time is to let them be right. Whenever there's, for me, there are a few exceptions where the government has to be involved, right? One, because that's really the core question, right? Where should the government intervene in the economy and where should it let, you know, you can make a case for a few social things, like maybe education to some extent, at least for the dispersion of money. You know, there's a different question about how that money could be spent. You know, in Sweden, they have vouchers and things like that. That's a good education system. Healthcare to some extent, some some control to some extent, maybe definitely defense, right? National defense and internal security, I think, is generally better off when you have a, a Leviathan. 
And then there's a few strange exceptions like the, the distribution of electrical power, right? I've been thinking for years and years with my classical liberal brain trying to come up with the way that, you know, Hydro-Quebec could function better if it were a bunch of different companies. And I just can't figure out how it would work, you know, because everything I've seen in other cases where they've tried to do that has usually ended up in, a, you know, kind of a disastrous um, you have a kind of problem there with the, you know, distribution of things anyway. that's a, so, But apart from that, I don't, you know, when it comes to like, the, could, could bring it back to the Facebook and Amazon and all those things. If you just wait long enough, if you have a dynamic system, right, those, you know, it, it's likely that if we don't do anything with Facebook and Twitter and all these companies, that in 20 or 30 years time, there's going to be some other big thing. Do you remember when Microsoft was going to take over the world in the 1990s? It was this enormous thing in Europe. They regulated it. Oh, this is, you know, they're embedding it on the computers and people, you know, they're not being given a real choice. And that was all true, right, for the time. Mm -hmm. Except that you, if you just allow the, the dynamism to continue functioning, someone's going to come up with something else that's going to make whatever that is not as important anyway enough time it's almost always the case right if you don't intervene too much right if you yeah. intervene to a certain extent you know you get in there and start mucking around you can get it to seize and you can say okay this is our system now and you get stuck with that you know what that system is a good example of this from what i uh, little i understand about it was the regulation of airwaves that really slowed down innovation um in the in the 20th century that Anyway, that's a. Well, I think very often what happens, and if you look at the Microsoft is a good example of this, but there's many examples like this. If you look at the history of a lot of these like very very successful organizations, and that are presented as like examples of why the free market is so amazing, you usually find that the um, the initial technology was uh, produced with government money. That it was like, it was taxpayers' money that yeah, came up with the technology and invested huge amounts of money in the, the technology and created And then somebody sort of uh, found a way to, to make money off of it and went off and made money with it. I have no problem with that. I think, you know, more power to you. But like, but then to turn around, it seems like really, really ungrateful and shitty to turn around and like, act as if oh i'm a self-made man like i just sort of came up with this off the top of my head like no you fucking didn't like you you basically stole some technology from the big corporation you were working for you were working for ibm and you you stole some of their tech and you made a lot of money off of it or you you had uh you took stuff that was produced by public money and then it's the it's the public that has you know we have created this huge infrastructure and the roads and all the things that make it possible for you to like produce your goods and services and get them to, to market. Like, and now you're going to act like somehow you're, it, it reminds me very much of like certain kind of guy. And I was totally this guy. Um, the certain kind of guy was into Nietzsche and Ayn Rand as a teenager. And it's like this sort of usually a guy, not always, uh, who's just like, yeah, don't tell me what to do, mom. Like, he's like, I want to do it. Like, and this, this, this attitude of, I just, I, I'm like a mushroom. I just emerged overnight. 
as a fully grown adult and I'm, you know, I've completely made my life and I deserve everything I have and, and not recognizing that people for years, usually women like wiped your ass, fed you, taught you how to read. You You went to school, like you got so much help and so much love from so many people and to just turn and, and eventually you'll be old and fucked up and you'll have to like get your ass get your diapers changed again and people will be waiting on you until you die and so to at the peak of your strength when things so many things have come together to make the civilization that you live in to create the institution to sort of act as if you are just apart from all of these things and like I don't need any of these things and I don't fucking owe you anything. You know, this is all mine. It just seems to be like in poor taste. You know? well, the, yeah, I, I totally agree. One of the best examples I've heard of that is, is when you take a totally you know, meritocratic uh, structure, like, like basketball, let's say, right. So you have some guy who worked his way up out of a poor neighborhood. And he's this amazing basketball player. It's like the fact of him having that opportunity the fact that he was lucky enough to be born in a time and in a place where he could exercise that skill and be paid for that is just astoundingly lucky. Right. And then, you know, then you go into a bunch of other things. He was lucky to be tall and he was lucky to have the right type of environment where he could go and practice all the time or something, you know, and all these different things. Any, any person who's in a, you know, who's successful in life, has had all of what you're talking about. There's no question about that, right? But they also have to do, you know, the 10,000 hours, right? The famous, right? Uh-huh. And it's, it's it's interesting how I think that a lot of just facing life is, you know, for young people, is hard to just go out and start doing things because you're afraid of failing, right? You uh-huh. know, myself, as a younger person, right? It was just hard for me to just go out. What am I going to do? You know, I did what I was going to do. And I was, and you're sort of paralyzed by fear. Right. So if you're told, if you're kind of told, Oh no, you know, uh, that guy who made all that money, he's no better than you. And, you know, it's kind of like that's really going to help that much. Right. It's kind of like you want people to say, I'm not as good as I can be. Right. So maybe if I work really hard, maybe if I try and be like, you know, Steve Jobs or I don't know, James Brown or who knows who, right? If I try and be like that, maybe I will, right? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if that, it's it's more like, I think the, the problem there about the self-made man, is, I, I totally understand that the person was also made by society, but he, they weren't entirely made by society too. They are exceptional in some way, right? Any person who is successful in life has something exceptional about them, right? I think, I don't know. It's just, I, I like what Thomas Sowell says where, where he talks about this, where he says that, um, you know, if you grow up in an incredibly kind of messed up environment where you're surrounded by lots of dysfunction and you're neglected and you're abused, maybe you have like lead in your water. And so you've like it, you know, reduced your IQ and stuff like that. For somebody like that, for them just to, just to grow up to being like a decent person who's not a criminal, who it's doesn't, an amazing hurt, who is an yeah. amazing achievement. Yeah. Like that person yeah. is very exceptional, but you would, anybody who doesn't know the specifics of their case wouldn't realize what a miracle that yeah. person is, you know? And then meanwhile, 
That's a somebody point. who somebody who like grows up with privilege uh, every every advantage in the book and they they yeah. do really really well if they end up like being i don't know an english prophet mcgill maybe that's like you know actually kind of underwhelming considering yeah. like all the uh, the advantages but but no when i when i'm talking about the, the sort of the nietzsche randian uh, i'm talking about like i've met i've met a, a fair number of people in my life i've got one guy in particular i'm thinking of who like he inherited in his mid-20s um like a, a lot of money like like we're talking like uh, over 20 million dollars right and he's he is like one of the most hardcore uh, devotees of Nietzsche and Ayn Rand and stuff like that. And the guy's never worked a day in his life, like at all. <laughs> he's never, and yet he's always lecturing and posting stuff about how, yeah, lazy people need to get a job and stop looking for handouts and stop looking at Dude, like, you know, I feel like, you know, Dave Chappelle, like, slow your roll, man. Like, look, seriously? Like, you, you know, you, you haven't got to where you are by hard work like your father worked really hard and made a lot of money and left it to his yeah. kids you know but I mean, the, the the way people end up i mean who was it coleman hughes was saying i was listening to an interview with him the other day he was talking about how james baldwin and thomas Sowell grew up in the same neighborhood same time but i guess james baldwin is another one of these you know these lucky few and they went i, I think they may have gone to the same school Right. I'm not. Wow. I'm not sure. I bet you'd have to. Someone could fact check me on that. But anyway, at the same time and look at their politics were, you know, just like night and day. Right. They ended up with and they they had, a, you know, they're both African-Americans and, you know, from the same similar background, time and place and whatnot. And look at the divergence there. I mean, so just the way that people end up with if someone ends up with a Randy and, you know, I tend to be, you know, I'm. I don't know about Ayn Rand. I haven't read any of her books. My brother says, oh, yeah, you have to read Ayn Rand. She's great, her books. But, uh, you know, I mean, I, I tend to be in the more sort of classical liberal leaning libertarian bent, right? Uh, someone else who I grew up with, other people have different views. People I'm very close with have very different political outlooks and so on than I do. And I mean, it's, I don't know. I mean, I don't, if people have that view and maybe it's undeserved, if that person you're talking, I don't know who you're talking about, but I mean, if, if that, like, you know, I, I don't really see how that negates the main point about what, you know, the, the legacy fair view, if you believe in it, right? I don't, I'm not sure how to, if that makes sense. It doesn't, I'm not seeing the connection exactly. Well, the, the connection for me is that I, I'm, you know, once again, is my, my central issue with soul is that, I love what he says about the tragic vision. I feel like, um, you know, I, I was very much affected in my 20s by reading St. Augustine and his, his vision. He, he's kind of the, I would say, probably the most profound exponent of the tragic vision that Sowell is talking about is, uh, is in St. Augustine. You can find it in the City of God and in other writings of his, but he basically says that um, we, he has a, a religious, a religious explanation for it, but you don't need, you don't need his religious explanation in order to find his worldview insightful. So he says that um, there are basic flaws in human nature that cannot be 
um, that cannot be remedied ever. We can just sort of like, uh, it's the difference between problems and, and conditions, right? If you have a condition, you just try and manage the symptoms. There's no solution for the condition. Like if you have an uncurable disease, then we don't try and get rid of it totally because we can't. So we just manage the symptoms, right? So, uh, and problems have solutions, right? So you try and, and that's very central to Augustine and to solve it. Um, that a lot of what progressives, a lot of what the anointed referred to as social problems are actually social conditions. Yeah, They're not problems. They don't have, there's no permanent, there's no, them, there's no, at the moment, there's no permanent solution to the problem of scarcity. There's always yeah. like more demands than supply. There's always more things that we want to do with our time than time we have. There's always more and so on and so forth. So because of those limitations on existence and on, we have to sort of work with these limitations uh, as best we can. So I like, I like all of that. I just find that that tragic vision uh, does not, to my mind, doesn't mesh nicely with the vision of, of of people sort of making decisions and being totally free and being responsible for oh, I see. Yeah. and so I, I for me like that the guy who's really into kind of freedom and liberty and individualism and everybody gets what they deserve who inherited you know twenty million dollars in his mid twenties like he um he it doesn't seem to me that he is adequately recognizing how much he's benefited now i'm not i'm not into like i'm not saying people have to be guilty i'm not saying they have to give their money up to the poor or anything like that those are different questions but i do think my mom used to say all the time when we were kids and i i i repeat this repeat it to my own kids like a mantra you know to whom much is given much is required so if you are if there's a little old lady who's who's like Sounds uh, you know, similar to the to the Marxist a little bit. I don't, you know, the to each according to his ability. Is that is that the? Uh, it's it's similar. I mean, they they they, they perverted it horribly. Yeah, um, I'm talking about it more in the kind of Judeo Christian sense, where it's just yeah. Yeah. if you've been given a lot of strength or you have a lot of strength at this point in your life, well, use that strength for to 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 do good to do good stuff like to defend people that are being fucked over by stronger people who can't defend themselves than to like help old ladies across the street. Cause you know, when you're a little baby, you're, you can't help people like that. And when you're a little old guy yourself, you can't help people like that. So if you have a lot of resources, whether it be uh, physical health, mental health, money, uh, smarts, like use your stuff to, as much as possible, use that to like help other people and to give back. Right. Well, many, but many if, people do, right? It's important to remember that charity is very common. I mean, you know, and you can also, another thing, I think Sol talks about this, about how the introduction of where the state takes care of, you know, is that you see a reduction in people helping out for the obvious reason that, you know, if you're if you're a wealthy person in a society that has a functional welfare, say, well, you know, the government's taking care of that. They're they're taxing me anyway. So, you know, 
I, I think that you can divide just to, I wanted to come back to your point there about the, um, the to each, each according to his, I, I forget how your mother phrased it. It was much more uh, elegant, I think, but um, in any case, it's kind of like you can divide that behavior between just small group behaviors. So if you're with your friends and your family and you're doing everything you can in your job, let's say, right, you know, you can actually do a lot in that way, right? But when you get into a scale of the world, or even not even the world, but just, you know, the, the entire city of Montreal or something like that, or, you know, the province of Quebec, let's say, or something, how much can I actually do to help the people who have X problem, right? I, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to do that without making their lives worse because I don't know enough about them, right? I don't, you know, um, I don't know if that makes any sense. You can divide. And is it is it a good idea to force me to give up my money to go and help those people? Maybe. That's, that's, the, that's the statist idea, right? That we will tax you, we'll take your money away, and then we'll create, you know, a, a system, you know, where people with drug problems go or something, have like a, you know, treatment program or something to help people with addiction or something like that, right? That makes some sort of sense, except that the, then you get into the incentives problem again. You disincentivize individuals from doing that when you socialize it to the state. This is, I mean, this is well-documented. Charity has gone way down as a proportion since the 19th century. Um, yeah, but if you, but I mean, I, I totally recognize that there's, there's trade-offs and they're not all pleasant, but if you look might at, be better. yeah, it could be uh, if you look at, like for instance, um, when I was when I was uh, at, at Hopkins in Baltimore, I remember my my wife who I met I met Annalisa there, and she she was studying with this guy. I'm blanking on his name right now, but he's a famous social scientist, and he had actually um, studied specifically orphanages and how they dealt with uh, with orphans and stuff like that, and he looked at how it was how it was dealt with by charities by like the catholic church and by various kinds of charities and he looked at that in the 18th century and the 19th century and then he looked at what happened when kind of the state took over that stuff and he kind of does like a cost benefit analysis and he looks at how much people gave to charity and how much people to try and and then he looks at you know what were the life chances of the, how how likely were the kids to be abused, uh, neglected, uh, how likely were they to live to be five years old, 10 years old, 15 years old. And he basically shows that like, he does a comparison of six different countries and how the the switch from charity to um, to welfare, to the state doing it. And he, better, says, right? and he says, in every instance, on every single indicator, um, the results were way, way better when the state took over doing that. However, uh, what they created was human. And so it still sucked in various ways. And it kind of sucks to be an orphan, no matter who's, you know, like, and, but he says on in every possible way, it was a huge step up to have this um, taken care of by the state rather than, and it also, oh, but the other thing he says is it actually was cheaper too. It ended up being cheaper. So in the same way that like, uh, you know, the look at the American healthcare system, they spend a massive amount of money on healthcare and they don't get a terribly, I mean, it's the number one reason people declare bankruptcy right now is uh, medical bills, right? That it's, they pay a huge amount of money 
in I remember when we lived down there, it was unbelievable. Like the yeah, your taxes are less, but the amount of money that you spend on your your insurance every month, it's, it's like every paycheck. And then when something actually goes wrong, uh you like the premiums are, are huge. Like yeah. it's uh so it, it, the idea there, that somehow the free market or charity can do it better, no. Well, I'm not sure. I mean, the, the one thing I would say about that is that very often there's, these things are impossible to prove one way or another. You can show that the things got better. I'm sure those are true. You can also show that charity giving went down. You can also show as a percentage of income. How could you, I'm not sure how you could disentangle the general economic growth, right, from that as well, right? Because, you know, it's it's kind of like, I mean, Thomas, just to bring it back to Thomas Sowell, right, he talks about how the general view of African-Americans is that sort of the emancipation, let's say, from, you know, the started in the, with the with the Voting Rights Act in 1965 in the Great Society. But he documents how this the social rise of, of Blacks from in the 20th century, just like in income and literacy and all these other factors, was sort of rocketing upward for the first half of the 20th century, right? And then it actually slows down with those other things. It actually levels off and it's still rising, but... Um, see, what I'm trying to say there is how do we know when, when we say we got better results when we took over from religious institutions, how do we know that those better results weren't just part of trends that were moving forward anyway, just because the society was richer and richer and richer over time? How do we know? I, I don't know. I imagine it's more efficient to have sort of one system like that than to have, you know, a whole bunch of churches all, you know, it's also better to have one system than to have it be segregated by your ethnicity. So if you're Jewish, you know, you can go to a Jewish hospital. And if you're, you know, this, that's how it used to be, right? The, the charities mm-hmm. should be based on, um, you know, uh, your your uh, religious uh, affiliation, right? So the, so the you know, the, the Protestants and Jews had better hospitals and the Catholics had worse ones, right? You know, that was so you have that problem, right? But I just don't know. And that's very interesting about Annalisa's teacher, I guess it was. I just don't know how much of that could be disentangled from general rise anyway, economically, right? You know, when you see those, you know, people have been better off for the last several hundred years all over the place, right? And so you get this problem. People say, well, you know, then the government took over and things got better. It's like, yeah, well, that's true, except how do we know what would have happened if we had just sort of allowed it to organize itself in a different way or something? I don't know. You know, it's very hard to know. We can't turn around and run those. But what we can do is there are natural experiments of government intervention versus non-government intervention, right? So like less or more of those institutions and we can see differences there. I live. I used to live in South Korea. I don't know if you know this about me, but I lived there for a couple of years and um I lived within walking distance of the, the DMZ, right? So I used to be able to hike up the hill behind my house. And it was, and I remember standing up there and looking at the South Korean side and there were all these sort of rice paddies and the, the hills were all covered in trees. You know, they were, they were trees. And then you look across the other side and there was just completely barren, right? Um, so the, the, there you have probably the closest thing to a natural experiment. So the, on the Northern side, the people were so desperately poor because of over-intervention, let's say, right? That's sort of an extreme case of over, you know, along with other problems that they, you know, they get cold in the winter. So what do they do? They go, they go and they chop down the trees. They can't trade effectively with the rest of the world because of the choice of the political system. So they can't import, they don't have enough money to import, you know, things like petroleum and stuff to run in their stoves, right? 
Um, I don't know. I, I'm just that's. I'm, I'd be curious to learn more about that. Um, those studies and those things, you know, because I'm not sure. I mean, because they're, they're really. I'm not necessarily saying that the government should not be involved in those things, and that we should just take the government away from orphanages and allow. You know, I, I don't know what a solution is for. Uh, you could call that a condition, right? Something like an orphanage is sort of like a societal condition. You're probably never going to get rid of some kids who are going to end up needing some care from the whole village. Let's say, right? You probably mm-hmm. always going to be. Some I can't. I can't think of. Um, right? I can't think of any natural. Off the top of my head, I can't think of any natural experiments which would which would which be able, would, to, would be able to prove what I the, the case yeah. I was just making. I can think of natural experiments that prove definitively that um, things like um, all sorts of uh, manufactured goods and agriculture do way way better when they're when government stays out of it for the most part. I mean, that, there's so many examples of that. I mean, like, the one like that jumps to mind immediately is you look at Zimbabwe, like that had this like incredibly uh, flourishing agricultural sector where they were just making tons of money. They had plenty of food to feed themselves and to feed you know half of Africa and like export tons of stuff. And then as soon as the government takes over and says, "Oh, we're gonna bring yeah. social justice." We're going to bring social justice to the sector, and they, yeah. which, which of course, as it very often does, just means putting my cronies in power, right? So, and they put all these people that didn't know anything about farming and didn't know anything about the international. You know, even trade. if they weren't their friends, if they were just let's say they just randomly chose some black Zimbabweans and said, you know, this farm owned by white people, the chances are that guy doesn't know how to do what the white farmer knows how to do, right? It's yeah. just learn how to do this. Is the other thing these middlemen minorities? This is a problem all over the world. There's this idea that if you're running a business where, say, you're lending money or you're doing something like that, then you're not really doing anything. You're just extracting from all the sort of hardworking farmers and people in the factories with their hammers and doing, you know, and all this stuff. It's, I'm, I'm caricaturing it, of course, but it's stark misunderstanding that the people who are performing financial services, for example, are doing, they're, they, they have an enormous amount of skill and they know what they're doing and they know how to assess risk and where to put the capital and how to, you know, and with you, the, every case, those natural experiments are the most tragic, right? I mean, you're talking about, um, what was that one in Uganda too, where they went after the, um, I think it was- South the, Asians. They went after the South Asians and you just see a total collapse, yeah. right? You see- and this brings up one funny thing that Stoll mentions. He talks about the ethnic, not funny, humorous, but just interesting to get back to maybe a, a mistake of his or at least a you know ideological, is he talks about the ethnic cleansing of Germans from uh, from Eastern Europe, which is one of these things that not many people know about. But after World War II, there was, um, you know, there have been minorities of Germans throughout Central and Eastern Europe for many centuries, right? From the Oh, yeah. Deutsch. Going back to the Middle Ages, the going back Jeff. way back to the Middle Ages, right? And in some cases, they were, you know, they were relatively small in number, like in Russia. In other cases, I mean, in Czechoslovakia, they were uh, three million, right? So the the famous Benesh decrees cleansed the country of. The, in fact, the the German minority is. Um, this is another country I happen to live in as well. It's interesting was Slovakia, but they. The German minority is the reason why the Czechs and Slovaks originally formed a political union, 
was because I had a guy tell me once when I was in the Czech Republic how it, when they formed Czechoslovakia in 1919, they, they had, you know, this sort of like, uh, if they had made just the Czech Republic, they would have been like 50-50 German-Czech, right? And so uh-huh. like, boy, this is going to be a really big problem politically because they're already, they run all the factories and they own all the capital and everything and all this stuff. So they created this union with Slovakia who they, you know, that they, and then they sort of had it be sort of a, maybe a 30% minority. But in any case, just to get back to this example of Seoul, he, they did the ethnic cleansing after, after World War II, they had an excuse in all these societies to go after these Germans who were, you know, socially higher up the ladder and so on. They threw them out. Um, you know, there's something like 12 million people moved. But Seoul at one point, one of his books, he said that this was one of the reasons why the economy collapsed in Czechoslovakia, you know, and it went, you know, and, it, and all this stuff. He gave all these statistics about how the, you know, the industrial output went down. He's giving all these numbers of statistics, which are all true. And then, you know, he connects it to when the Germans were all thrown out, 3 million people, they, they went to, you know, force them to go to Germany and many of them had never even been there and all this stuff. It's all true. But he neglects to mention something really important was that at the same time, a socialist um, government was established at exactly the same time that the Benesh decrees come into effect, right? So uh-huh. I'm surprised that he wouldn't at least mention it as a footnote because obviously that had a, a, you know, a dampening effect on exchange as well. Right, the government takeover of all the industries and the, uh, you know, but uh, I guess to chalk that up to, I don't know if that's an ideological mistake. I don't know, or you know, how much of it is true. Like, look at that case, right? How much Czechoslovak yeah. economic total disaster from 1945 to 1975 was because of the socialism that was installed, and how much of it was the Germans leaving? Because that must have been something, right? They left and they took as much. Well, they, took, they took all of their human capital with them. That is, the, in their brains, they, you know, to take the Malcolm Gladwell thing, right? They had all those skills and everything, and they were left from the country. And maybe they stole all their factories and all that stuff, so they you know, couldn't leave with that. But how much of it was one? How much of it was the other? It's a good question. It's hard to, it's hard to tell. I thought, I thought I would just finish our, our conversation with sort of just maybe if both of us could... Uh, uh, say you know two of the things that we've learned from uh, from Thomas Sowell. Like the, I, I was, I'll, I'll sort of start off. I one of the things that I remember, I think this is probably the first thing that I read in Sowell where I was like, "Wow, this guy is." I'm gonna learn a lot from this guy. This is it's when he he talked about. I mean, and there's many examples of this, but this is one that like jumps to mind is when he talks about. Um, his critique of the concept of income distribution. And he says, like, you know, uh, there's these ways in which we talk about things which uh, sort of stack the deck in favor of one conclusion, you know, so that it it seems like you're having like an open conversation about something, but you've actually, it's, you've stacked the deck in advance. And so he says, like, when we talk about income distribution, it sounds as if like all the money is put in a big pile and then we decide yeah. like how to like share it out. And that if there's, there's big ma- amounts of inequality that it's, it's necessarily because we didn't share it out evenly or, or equitably that we have to, and he says like, this is just not how it actually happens. You know, most of the money that people have was put in their pocket voluntarily because right. they they were giving somebody 
something like a service or a good that that person wanted. And so they they voluntarily took their wallet out and handed them some money or a card. And like, it, it wasn't, so the idea that somehow, okay, well, we need to have some, you know, government organization that steps in and kind of makes sure that we share out the stuff, you know, more fairly, like, that is not at all how it happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I think that's a great, that's a great one. But one thing I would say is um, he's been saying for a very, very long time, you know, going back to, I've, I've you know, read books and seen interviews with him from like seventies and eighties that this strange idea that if you have, you know, 23% of Canada's population is French Canadian. So therefore there must be, you know, 23% of carpenters and 23% of lawyers and 20, you know, or something like that. In other words, if you just take the population of a given society and you cut it into different groups and they all must be equally represented, that idea, if you think about it, is very strange. And there's nowhere in the world where that has ever um, shaken out that way. It has never come out, you know, he talks about how he went around the world looking at different countries and he never found a society where, there was a different composition of ethnic groups and they all had equal representation in every single field, right? So just, I mean, you could get into a long discussion there too, like, is that just or unjust? And that's not really the point. It's more, why do they shake out differently? Why do some people in their homes and communities and families and so on get more interested in doing different things, right? Because we know that interest is the main driver of why people get better at things, right? What you like doing when you're 10 and 15 and so on years old that, you know, that you spend more time doing, that's what you tend to get better at, that you tend to excel at in your life generally, right? We want yeah. families and different peoples do that, right? We don't, right? I agree that, that definitely, you know, everywhere in the world today and in, in human history, there's been inequalities of outcome for sure. And people don't all end up but I also think that um, the the desire to try and make our ruling uh, institutions to to make them more sort of representative, I don't think that is something new. Like you know, we, we've talked about this with regard to like Canada and the history of Canada, how they they always tried to sort of make sure that there was a good mix of francophones and anglophones in the cabinet in various kind of positions of power because they recognize that okay if it's nothing but francophones in the federal government in high mm -hmm. positions for 20 years well guess what pretty soon you know, the english canada are gonna be like this is bullshit <laughs> like we're not being we're clearly this is clearly a system that is rigged in favor of like uh, the francophone elites so we're out of here let's like separate right and all countries and and even down to like families and religious have ways of trying to become uh, to be more so you know the example of like you know this guy going to a libertarian conference and they try and like put everybody who's like a woman and minority like up on the stage to make yeah. it look more that is not new to this historical period i mean the roman empire when it was expanding they very self-consciously included as they were expanding they opened up citizenship to people who were not ethnically uh, italian like from the italian peninsula 
they opened it up to people who were uh, like had like you know tall blonde blue-eyed uh, germanic people they opened it up to gauls they opened it up to east asians to people from north africa they and they specifically tried to put people from these outlying newly conquered areas into positions of power precisely because uh, they you know not because they were you know kind of like proto woke people who were trying to like yeah celebrate our diversity it's because they just understood that like you can't have legitimacy of a big whether it's the Montreal police or the Roman Empire or Canada or the United States you can't have legitimacy if certain people are perceived as being outsiders constantly like outside of power like not invited in on the party but that's a power structure though right that's not like i mean i saw talking about just all you know like everything so if you look at the number of you know jazz saxophonists or something like like this idea like like now with this woke thing we've got this thing for example with orchestras and stuff right and and things like that and you think I mean, it's like I, I totally understand it from a political point of view. For something like the police, I can like that's something that makes a lot of sense to me to say, okay, you know, if you have part of the city where you have higher crime and there's also an ethnic group that's more predominant in that part of the city, you want to have more police just to make the people in that community don't not to feel like they're in a war with another ethnic group. Right. So it's not like, you know, I lived in Park Extension for like 12 years. And I remember the police and that they sort of felt like a, like an outside occupying force. It would be some, you know, French Canadian guy would come in and nobody in the neighborhood was very few, you know. But I, I, I just think that that idea to apply to, say, you know, I don't know, like lawyers or you know what I mean? Like it's it, if you just sort of take that as an axiomatic thing for all professions and, and trades and stuff, and say that there should be this equal distribution or something. I, I don't know that that is necessary. And it, it's, it actually might harm the way that those trades are functioned, or, you know, how they work, if it's applied in areas other than politics and the police. You could probably name a few, but I don't know what you Yeah, think. no, I, I, I totally agree with that. Like, when I can, you know, there's certain things, like obviously law enforcement and politics, where, you know, you, those are two obvious examples, where having... Uh, being being perceived as being more kind of diverse and, and kind of representative of the population is is not just good from some sort of celebrate diversity abstract sense. It's good just in terms of it makes it easier for you to do your job, like you have legitimacy. But yeah, when it comes to like I don't know brain surgery or uh, you know making like spaceships that are going to go to Mars, like I I just want. I want like the best people in those jobs. And I don't care if, if a meritocratic system shakes out so that all the brain surgeons in Quebec end up being, um, I don't know, Korean women. Um, I don't care. Like if, if, if they're the best like brain surgeons, that's who I want operating on my brain. Um, I don't want like somebody that, you know, some, white Irish guy that they hired for diversity. <laughs> like, I don't want, I don't want that guy. Yeah. Okay. You can have that guy for your brain surgery. I want the Korean check who does it well. Like, so. Um, so where's yeah, the border it, there? That's, that's a difficult problem is, you know, 
where is it okay to do something for a political reason, like a, like a good reason to try and bring a, a group or some set of people into your quality? And where is it something where it's actually going to harm the quality of the service or even harm the, the diversity of your system? If you're doing it to the point where you're alienating, it becomes a thing where people are are forced into thinking of themselves in these ethnic groups and how they have grievances one against the other. That's a very common soul point as well. That, uh, that might be my second point would be soul talks about how like if you people are, if they're told that they should be, you know, that they're part of an ethnic group and they should focus on that. And that group has been oppressed or whatever. Right. Um, yeah. Often it's true. I mean, it's, you know, it's uh, that doesn't ever help that those people advance in any way. Right. And people. Right. Very rarely to think of yourself as a victim is probably the worst thing you can do. You know, a good example is if, if you had a child that was handicapped. Right. If you know people who have handicapped children, the one thing they do, the one thing they try and do is to instill the idea in that kid that they can do what they want to do. They can overcome this thing. You know, like, they, you know, the worst thing you could do is make them feel is to encourage them to feel sorry for themselves. They're they're you know, and they would have a good reason to feel sorry for themselves. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. you can't walk or whatever, right? But that's not going to help them. You know, I, I don't mean to compare handicapped people with, you know, racial minorities or something like that. But you you can think of it in those terms, right? That you should we should do everything we can to send the message to people that they can do better than whatever they're doing now, right? Regardless of, the you know, the, where they come from. I, I think that's a good idea, but I don't know. Maybe not. Well, that's a that's a a nice hopeful place to to finish off. <laughs> anyway, this has been absolutely fascinating. I think we we may have to uh, do like a part two because there's just yeah. so much more. Like we're already like two and a half hours in, and I have like <laughs> I have a list of so many other things that I wanted. I mean, because Thomas Sowell is just such a uh, such a rich, uh, interesting source. You know, like he's. Uh, Fantastic stuff. I'd like uh, to just quickly thank you too, because uh, this has been uh, like I've really appreciated the conversation. The opportunity to talk about soul as well is interesting. I use him a lot in my classes as well. I don't know some of his work, and I agree. I've got a whole list of things (laughs) I don't even get to here that you know we could cover at a at another time. So yeah, I mean, I guess the the short version I would say in answer to your question about where is the border. Um, I, I'm not exactly, there's some extreme cases like law enforcement and, and politics on one side and then, you know, brain surgery and spaceship engineering <laughs> yeah. on the other, maybe, but like, um, but in terms of where the border is, I'm not, I'm not sure. Like I, I used to think, for instance, that education was, especially higher education was, was totally on the brain surgery side that, you just want the best people and it doesn't really matter. But I've, you know, been reading some reports. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you about this when we're off air. I'm not going to tell, I'm not going to say this loud, but let's just say I've, I've seen information recently that has been quite disturbing on that score that, you know, in many humanities departments, um, the chances that a, a boy will fail a class is three times more likely if his teacher is a woman as a, a teacher as a man and i've i've read a lot of credible uh, accounts that you know in if your teacher if you if, if you're a member of a minority group and your teacher is a member of the same minority group you are 
significantly more likely to do well in that class and to to be engaged and to learn more and even down to dialect. So if you speak a particular dialect or you have a particular accent, so I don't know, let's say you're like a New Yorker, you got like a thick New York accent. Um, kids in your class who are native-born New Yorkers will, on average, do better in a class where the person not only, you know, Thank you for listening to today's guest on the Mega Blast Podcast. I've been your host, Jason McDonald. This podcast is brought to you by Arts and Opinion, an online journal, which is also available in the permanent archives of Canada. Visit us online at artsandopinion.com. 